Hey guys, if you want to support the podcast, please like, rate, review, subscribe, share with your friends, toss it around on Facebook, Instagram, wherever. Please spread the word. Um, also, you can go to patreon.com slash 185 miles south, become a patreon, dollar a month, uh, three dollars a month, etc., etc. Uh, we're finally rolling out some bonuses and, uh, and just much respect to all the people that are helping me out. I really appreciate that. Uh, you can also donate uh, PayPal. It's paypal.me slash 185 miles south. Get it done that way. Um, on this week's episode, we have Carl Valdez from Ill Repute, the original drummer. Um, and this is a nice long one. Carl has a fucking impeccable memory and goes into everything. Um it's fucking awesome. So here we go. One hundred eighty five miles south, a hardcore punk rock podcast. All right, this week we have Carl Valdez, the original drummer of Ill Repute. And uh, Carl, you said you were going to clean up all the gaps for me, huh? Yeah, I'll try to do my best. Uh, I've been known to have a decent memory, so yeah. I'm going to <laughs> I'm gonna try to my best to fill in some of these gaps of what some of these other guys have been talking about. Cool. So, well, let's start it off. Uh, how did you meet all the guys in Ill Repute? So one thing I was thinking about is, you know, all four of us, well, three, you know, we were all good friends or, or pretty good friends before the band even started. Um, I, you know, the others had talked about how they knew each other in junior high and earlier, but um, I, I knew Jimmy from playing football. Okay. Um, yeah, so we both played football since we were freshmen in high school. It's kind of funny because Jimmy played defense. He was a defensive back, and I played wide receiver. Okay. So we had gone against each other on the football field um, <laughs> every day at practice, and I'm sure Jimmy's given me plenty of sticks yeah. uh, over the over the years. So we were we were close in that way because we were all part of the football team. And this is Wainimi High. This is a Wainimi High. Yeah, so we played together from freshman year on uh, all through varsity. Uh, and so we had a lot of common friends. I met Tony. Now, he was in a math class of mine. And uh, me and another couple guys always wanted to start this garage band kind of thing. We always had the dreams of being in a band. And we had heard Tony played guitar. Okay. So... Uh, you know, so we met Tony and we said, hey, we heard you know how to play guitar. He goes, yeah. He goes, hey, we'd like to start a band. Can we come over sometime and just hear you play? It was really funny. It's like we kind of made Tony audition for us. Yeah. And we didn't even have a band. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so I remember like he was playing like, you know, his brother's acoustic guitar. And he was playing Evil Ways by Santana sure. and uh, Proud Mary by credence and stuff i said all right so we, we had a band there and then john was a year later from us but because he was good friends with jimmy um you know he just hung out with us and and it's funny because 
there was a club in high school called Interact. And I think it was our junior year or senior year in high school, the club picture has the four of us standing real close to each other in the picture. Three of us were actually officers. Okay. So me, Jimmy, and Tony were officers in the club. And John is standing like right behind one of us in the in the photo. So we were all friends. We ate lunch together. Um, went to Tony's house all the time, playing music. You know, Jimmy and his family, I was really close to his family. His his younger brother Steven was actually one of my best friends. Um during this whole era. So uh, we became really close. I know that uh, my well, Stephen's brother, I'm sorry, Jimmy's brother, Stephen, was good friends with my sister. I know John's brother, Mike, hung out with my sister for a long time, too. So we were all pretty close well before the band years. And we had spent a lot of time together uh, going to parties you know, going to concerts and that kind of stuff together as friends. That makes sense because it seems like you generally or you genuinely like each other because there is so much early output, right? There's a there's a million demo songs, and so you're right. obviously jamming a ton. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, it's funny because you talk about how close we were. I remember, uh, you know, Jimmy even during the band years because Jimmy was the only Jimmy and I were the only ones who were really into sports. So we would go to football games. Jim and I would go to the horse track down at Santa Anita. We, we did a lot of, you know, we'd go to hockey games together. So we did stuff like that away from the band. John and I spent a lot of time with each other, too. Um, yeah, so we were, just, we were just close. I really think that was one of the things that uh, helped, you know, develop that band was just our closest as friends and just wanted to, create together yeah and did that's the original lineup just for you coming together right there was no let's try a different bass player try a different drummer or anything originally yeah. for you right i know they you know the, like they've said before too they had the concept of the band before i even got in there now because tony and i had you know a little garage band in high school um they had asked me a few times and it was interesting for me because I just wasn't into the punk rock scene. And it wasn't like they asked me, you know, they may have asked me, Hey, do you want to go to punk rock shows with or with us or whatever? But I don't recall that being a conversation so much as, Hey, will you be the drummer in our band into a style of music that I really didn't know. And I'll be honest, probably just didn't even like it. Cause I just didn't get it. Yeah, well, I hate to break it to you, Carl. You're a total poser. You didn't get into punk rock until 1982. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, or exactly. 81, 81 or 82. Man, exactly. What a, what a jack. <laughs> yeah. You know, but it's funny because, yeah, I wasn't into it at all. And and uh, it, it, it it's, it's funny because, you know, and they've said, too, I used to argue with them. Was, oh, nobody could play like this. I don't understand what this music is. That's not, that's not real drumming because it's too fast. Nobody could even play that way. Right. Yeah. So do you remember, like, the first practice or any, or any of the early practices? Yes. Yes. I, I, you know, they were, they were always at my house. Um, my and, parents were really cool about us practicing there. 
Um, and what part of town are you living in, Carl? No, this is in South Oxnard on the J Street, uh, J Street house, which is where the cover of the Land of No Toilets was literally right outside of my front door. Um, and we just practiced there, you know, almost every night that we possibly could. If somebody wasn't working or whatever, it wasn't like my parents said, nope, you guys can't practice tonight. Uh, we, we just, we practiced as much as we could. And, you know, Tony would just kind of, you know, play a song. Hey, we want to do this. And, and I didn't know punk rock music. I didn't know how to even go about it. So they would just say, Hey, kind of play this kind of beat, you know, and I'm thinking, okay. And I just do the best that I can. And sometimes, okay, play a little faster or whatever. And all I really tried to do was try to incorporate the bands that I had listened to, but just faster. Yeah. You know, and you know, you know, I was, you know, such a rocker, you know, I'm not going to go into how much I love bad company, but you know, I listened to kiss, you know, in Boston and cheap trick, you know, and Van Halen and Zeppelin. And then I just played those kind of beats, but just faster. Yeah. Uh, and that was, that was all I knew. I didn't know that there was, you know, drummers like Lucky from Circle Jerks or Derek from Social Distortion out there creating their own styles. I was just kind of playing what I just came, what came natural. Sure. And the drumming on the demos is, is a little more straightforward punk rock, don't you think? Yes, yes, because, um, and it was more because I just didn't, uh, I, I just had limited exposure right. to really what was going on at that time. And and the only exposure I really had was what, you know, Tony or Jimmy was writing. Right. So I'm thinking, okay, they're playing, and you'll say, okay, this is the kind of beat I would play in this, and and sometimes they say, no, play it like this. But then I kind of grew into the style that they were writing. Right. Yeah. Well, that's becoming a band, right? Yeah, that's going to go. Yeah, exactly. Forming a band and being a band, and and learning together. I mean, we were all self-taught. So I think we all just kind of grew and matured into our instruments together. And that was the fun part of it all. Sure. How long after you guys started jamming do you think you went and did the first demo recording? I, you're looking back and I'm thinking literally it was probably just months. Yeah. Uh, I don't know the exact date that we uh, first started practicing. I'm going to say it was probably sometime in the summer. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, if I'm looking at timelines, it's probably the summer of '81, and we were probably in the studio by shoot, probably by October or November of that year, and sending a you know a demo tape to Rodney. I think it, I really think it happened that fast, and we just didn't know it. Yeah, yeah. And then, are you when do you start playing shows? Do you do you remember? Well, then by that new, so New Year's Eve was our first show. Okay. It was the first official paid gig, and that was for the, the Al Anon Club. With the beer guts? No, no, no. That wasn't, so that was our first punk show. Okay. We were, we played a uh, show for an Alcoholics Anonymous uh, New Year's Eve party. Okay. And they weren't expecting a punk band. And it was a, it was a, it was the mom of one of John's friends. And they said, Hey, we need a band for this gig. And we thought, you know, she, she says, 
well, you guys have a band. And <laughs> she's like, he's like, uh, this is the kind of style of music that you want at this. Cause then she trusts us and says, no, we, we want you guys to, to play this. And yeah. <laughs> we opened up with a song. It's all the demos called rapid pulse. Okay. That was the first song that we played there just to kind of shake them up and say, Hey, this is what we're about. And yeah. I, I don't even think we finished the gig. They just kind of said, okay, thank you guys. And, you know, after the first break, you know, they gave us some money. We get, we got paid 150 bucks for the show. Wow. Without, that's a, okay. That's yeah. And that, was our, <laughs> that was our very first gig. Yeah. But how, that many, first, how many people fell oh, off ahead. the wagon that, that night? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there was, <laughs> that, was, that was the big joke is that we probably just drove a lot of these people back to drinking. <laughs> so then the first punk show was that one that I've seen the flyer with the beer guts. Yeah, beer guts, circle, uh, circle one headlined, um, and aggression played as well. So I think we had played a number of house parties okay. by you know between there, and we were playing Silver Strand a lot. So at this time, well, I don't know if this is time, but because I had this big garage that was pretty much empty, uh, people were coming to the house to watch us practice all the time. Cool. And you know, other bands were coming over just because it was just just seemed like that Somewhere was the thing to do yeah Somewhere it was a place to hang i mean you know nobody was getting in trouble nobody was you know drinking out in the street or anything like that it was just some place to be and we would practice and then we would go from there and i remember domino's pizza had just opened around the corner and uh <laughs> you know so i remember us going to get pizza a lot was like Ron Baird would be there from, you know, so that whole scene was just always at the house and it just, it was just seemed like a natural thing that we were always doing. I mean, yeah. probably a few times a week, people were just coming over, just hanging out with us. Sure. That's so cool. Yeah. And so then you start playing shows and right. uh, are you, are you building up some popularity? Yeah, I remember we just you know especially we we do the house party and we're and we're house parties and we're doing the demo tape and we get these we we get it out uh you know, we make copies for friends or whatever um I know we started getting some LA house parties one of the more memorable house parties that we played was um Black Flag Sin Thirty Four Suicidal Tendencies. And us, and maybe even some other bands, but those are the only bands that I remember. And that's a house show. It was a house party. So, yeah. like, a, are you playing a backyard or? You're playing in a backyard. And how many people do you think are there? Oh shoot, I don't know, hundred. God, that's insane. Yeah, and and I remember, um, actually, suicidal tendencies was gonna open for us at that time. Oh, I'm, I'm pretty sure circle one had played as well uh-huh. because that was, they were the ones getting us all these parties, you know, right. down in LA. And, and so I remember Mike Muir talking to John Macias about it was like, why the hell are those guys? They're not even from LA. And why do we got to play before them? Uh, I just remember, <laughs> but, it, but it was crazy. Cause yeah, I mean, black flex in 34 was playing and circle one and stuff. At a house party, yeah. That's totally so insane. Yeah, so and then we we became good friends, or I actually became good friends with a lot of girls from Ojai mm-hmm. because I worked with one of the girls' moms, and and I told her, yeah, we got this band, and she's like, oh, my daughter would probably like your music. 
So she introduces me to a whole bunch of her friends up in Ojai that went to this um, private school up there. So so they became real good friends of ours, too. And so the buzz of our band started going up into the Ojai regions and then somehow it merged into the Ventura area. So uh, we got a pretty good fan base uh, outside of the Oxnard area um, pretty quickly. Yeah, and can can you talk about like how you met the Circle One guys? No, I'm pretty sure you know. So Tony and Jim and John, and especially Tony and Jim, could probably tell that story better. But because they were already going to shows, you know, they're right. They probably know, just met is, them going to shows. And so they they met them going to shows, and and I've heard different stories about how they've met them, but they became really you know close with them, and I think they were the ones who encouraged Jimmy and Tony. To start the band. Gotcha. Yeah, because they that, they were playing. That that was kind of my question is those guys have always had the the reputation of being like really intimidating guys where <laughs> and ill repute always kind of like you guys are you're like a fun, awesome band. You know, and like and ever like everyone to a man is like a nice guy. And so right. it's just kind of it was kind of an interesting pairing. Yeah, how how we got hooking with the circle one guys, and I think it was because uh, they befriended, you know, John Macias was a great, you know, and this guy was, to me, he was just this big, towering presence. And even my times around John, he was always just really cool to me. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and I have some vivid memories of being around them and especially that reputation that they had. And, and, it, and so the song Bad Rep, mm-hmm. I, I wrote, that was, that was one of the, one of the few songs that I wrote, but I wrote it after a night that we were in Hollywood and the circle one guys kind of had, I don't know. I don't want to say they had a reputation for starting trouble, but somehow trouble seemed to follow them. (laughs) We'll say it that way. Well, I I remember you won't be the one starting the rumor. (laughs) You don't have to worry about it in 2019. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Plus John Macias is gone now. So he's not going to come after me. That's true. true. I remember, I remember we were at um, the uh, um, oh I can't even think of the club that's it's on Hollywood Boulevard. Um, anyway, so we're we're at the whiskey. We were at the whiskey, and we're you know we're seeing a show. I don't remember who was playing. I think Fear was playing that night. And all of a sudden, all the guys in Circle One and who we used to call the family start walking down. Uh, Hollywood Boulevard or Sunset Boulevard is what it is and just start messing with people maybe start intimidating people next thing I see is people are getting beat up and a a girl's car catches on fire at a (laughs) gas station yeah I mean it was crazy and I remember the cops coming that and now that escalated you know, quickly. <laughs> Suddenly, there's a car. Yeah, fire. you know, talk about it escalating fast. Mm. And I remember us running down Sunset Boulevard, hiding from the cops. And I remember ducking down this alley, and I can't remember who exactly I was with, hiding from the cops. And I'm thinking, "Fuck, I'm just a guy. I'm just a drummer in this band from Oxnard, and I'm running for my life. And I didn't even do anything." Mm-hmm. And that's exactly the lyrics of Bad Rep. Yeah. That's you know? awesome. And, and so I wrote Bad Rep just from that. I mean, literally probably the next day 
wrote these lyrics down and, and wrote that song. He said, this is, this is the story of my life right now. I am being associated with these guys and you know, I'm going to have a bad reputation because of that. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. So you guys are building up a little bit of a name and then the song comes out on Rodney. Right. And is, is it like an overnight thing? Do you see like a lot more popularity after that? Oh yeah. So once uh once that comes on, we're talking about being on the radio. Uh and at that time, I mean K Rock was really the only alternative rock station. And at that time, you know, nationwide, it was known for being the uh you know, the top alternative radio station. Like if you're gonna have alternative radio that's who you're, you're, you're going to emulate after Carol Q. So getting on Rodney or getting on Rodney's show. And then of course, and getting on the, on the album, you know, you're just telling people, Oh yeah, we're ill repute. And you know, we, we did clean cut American kid. And now everybody's like, Oh yeah, we know clean cut American kid. Yeah, and it, you know, so it's amazing. So there was this one show that we played and there's a video floating around from 19, 84 at the Stardust Ballroom. And it was so Land of the Toilets was already out. Um, but it's you know, it, it's it's not like a you know, household record or anything. It was just before what happens next had come out. But you know, when we play Clean Cut American Kid on that video, you just see the crowd is just going nuts. Yeah, I mean, they're all over the stage, they're jumping on stage, singing along with John the best they can. I mean, that was such a breakthrough song for being a first song. I mean, that was a legit hit song. Yeah. Right away, right away. And, and, um, I remember when Tony presented the band, he's like, Hey, I got this song and it just clicked right away. Um, the original version isn't too different from what got put on the record other than, you know, Robbie Fields wanted us to do whoa. instead of the little guitar lick. Right. You know, but you know, and that's what a, yeah, exactly. But that's, but that's exactly what a record producer does. Absolutely. He just says, you know, we're going to do this instead of that. Trust me, you know, in the middle, we're going to do this big chant where we're just seeing clean cut American kid where it's just the drums and we're going to come back in. And, um, you know, so that was, that was pretty much it. You know, one thing I did wanted to say with Tony's, you know, musical songwriting genius, I think, is, you know, that song is a two chord song. I know. And, and, and to go, you know, from there with his, you know, limited training at that time, too, to write this hit song with two chords is just amazing. Well, it's a shower uh, song. It's a, a song he had to have just started singing to himself in the shower and then came yeah. out of it and laid it down. Because <laughs> you, you're, you're writing a hook, right? You're just yeah. writing a hook. And then you got to figure out how to, not fuck it up when you're trying to put it down on the guitar. <laughs> right. Right. So. It is. It, and, and, uh, um, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just a pretty basic song, but it, but it, it's, it's got all song. these little intricacies too. People love singing along to it. Um, everybody's doing their part in the song and it just comes together as the you know, hit song. We think, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's so cool. cool. Now that's like one of the most amazing things about Ill Repute, though, is like you sniff a little success with this song and then you make the hardest right turn ever and do <laughs> Land of No Toilets, which is like 
it's just a viscerally kind of ugly seven inch. Yeah. Like, the yeah. Way, the way it sounds like the guitar tone is gnarly. You step up the drumming to like, you go full force instead of like, you're doing like the faster, the faster mid paced punk beat on right. like on, on the demos. But here right. you're going to like full fast. Right. So what, what was that to, to add the speed? Well, it's funny. Cause I remember, you know, when Tony did his, uh, podcast with you it's funny tony depicted it probably better than i would have even thought it but as i was thinking about this it was really just about i had that much more exposure to what was going on in the punk rock scene yeah at this time so you know you talk about a full transformation you know here we are you know i'm the total rocker guy with the longer hair didn't want to go to punk rock shows didn't want to even be in a punk rock band to once i got in it I was the one driving down to L.A. two, three, four nights a week, taking us to all the punk rock shows that we can go to. Right. So um, so now it's really just about exposure. And I'm just seeing all these different bands at different size venues, whether they were small clubs or we're going to these big clubs like at the or arena shows like the Olympic Auditorium. Uh, we're playing with bands. Uh, we, we played with Circle Jerks a number of times in those earlier days. I remember played with Social Distortion a number of times. Um, seeing those bands and being around them started, and I started just understanding, not trying to be like every other drummer, but just kind of understanding the music style. Yeah. You know, and I really think that when you talk about punk rock, you can't compare the L.A. stuff, you know, like the New York stuff or the English stuff. Or, you know, L.A. had it was hardcore. That's what it was. So really just getting into the hardcore style of music really got me uh, listening to it more, starting listening to uh, what drummers were really doing in the songs and and. Um, and I just started getting faster at it. And I was like, you know, this is, I think one of the other bands that I probably don't give a lot of credit for, and I probably don't even listen to them a lot too, is like bands like Gang Green. Well, you know, yeah, they're out of this S- world fast. S- you know, SSD, mm-hmm. you know, some of the DC bands, uh, listen to a lot of them. Obviously, Minor Threat was a, was a real big influence in those earlier years. And I just started thinking, okay, this is what they're doing. I can do this. And I just started playing it more and more. And I really think as a band, they started writing more songs in that style too. So, um, you know, when you're talking about like songs like Fuck With My Head, I mean, it's a da 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 you know, just, and then, you know, just figure out how to put those breaks in there. Right. And, and, and to me, that's the amazing part about our band is that, we didn't have any training. We didn't have a producer telling us, oh, you need to do this and that. We just listened and just kind of worked in, on these songs together. You know, I, I wrote the beginning of Sleepwalking, you know, the picking part. I probably was, you know, maybe a little bit influenced by TSOL, mm-hmm. but also, you know, but also obviously, uh, you know, influenced by... Um, you know, uh, ACDC's Hell's Bells. Sure. Or, sure. You know, I mean, it's like, or, or uh, those kind of songs. But I wrote that a beginning riff, you know, and then I kind of figured out, well, if this is the, 
the melody of the and I thought, okay, well, this is the kind of drums I got to put in it. So I, so we just start producing the song, and Tony tells me after I showed him my little lick, he goes and he says, I think that's going to go perfect with this other song that I've been writing, which happened to be in the same exact key. So that's where the fast part comes in. Right. So uh, it just, I think, you know, from the seven inch, it was really just, you know, getting to play a little bit more with each other. I know we always had talked about putting, I won't kill for you on there just because it was the first still repute song. So I think there was always an intention to put, I won't kill for you on that seven inch. Um, right. And that's the song that survived from the demo. Right. Right. Yeah. It was a demo, and then, and then uh, you crank it on the seven inch. Yeah, so we, you know, we played. You know, obviously, you could tell that we matured as musicians and as a band at that time. There were some other songs that I know we wanted to put on there. Like I know we wanted to put Death Row mm-hmm. on there, but it, I, I just don't think I don't think we matured enough on that song for it to make it. Yeah, so there's also why, there's not a ton of space on a seven inch. Right. So. Um, you know, we'll get back at them and, uh, you know, in society, who cares? I mean, those are like, you know, really fast songs. And we saw Wallace. And so that's, they, be, but they became our better songs. We liked playing those songs. Um, I think even when we did sleepwalking, we had no idea that was going to be, you know, a trilogy of hit songs <laughs> that, yeah, that yeah. were going to be, you know, staples. It was just a song that we wrote and, you know, there was a story to tell and, Yo, let's let's just play it. Well, I mean, you're kind of be... you're kind of fucking with those dark chords, and like, yeah, yes. the only band that's kind of doing that is the TSOL, right? Right. Uh, in the punk genre, right? Know? Of course, right. they have the ACDC, and then you have all the the death rock type stuff too, right? But uh, but you know, well. it's funny because my experience on a guitar was very limited. I mean, you know, I could probably I may be the only person to ever say that Tony Cortez was really my guitar teacher influence as, yeah. as far as guitaring goes mm-hmm. it's just because from being around the band and and to come up with a lick like sleepwalking you know with limited i didn't even own a guitar at that time you know it's it pretty amazing <laughs> now i think about it that's nah, super rad so yeah. how how do you lose the kick drum track on the seven inch when it's you're, it's not digital so how, i don't even understand how that happens <laughs> I'm not even really sure how it happened. I'm sure. Well, I would presume that maybe um, a cable got disconnected mm. or or something on the board. Maybe they had hit the mute button on the kick by accident. Yeah. So you think it just didn't but, record? Yeah. So we think it just didn't record. So when we go to the final mix, uh, and actually it was only... Well, I'm not sure how many songs it was. It was a few songs. It wasn't the entire okay. uh, record, but it was a few songs. You catch it after a couple songs. Yeah, and 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 we're going there for the final mix. So you know, we do a couple of songs, and everything's fine. Then we go to a couple more songs, and we're like, "Where's the kick drum?" Gosh. And so at that time, it was like, you know, this is probably you know a weeks later, and it's down in L.A. So we don't have a kick drum in the studio. We don't. We it's like we're not going to re-record these songs. And sure. And the engineer, he's looking around the studio for stuff, and he pulls out this Folgers can and this wooden spoon, and he looks at me and he says, <laughs> do you think you can play the kick drum right here uh, with on this Folgers can? 
And like, what? <laughs> I mean, because you're talking, I mean, it's a totally different dynamic of your foot versus your hand. Right. <laughs> and, and, and I said, well, I'll try. I mean, that's the best thing we could do. So he, so he hooks it up and we're setting the EQs right. And actually it made a better kick drum sound than my own kick drum. And I remember asking him, how did you even know to do this? And He's like, oh, he I said, fuck up all the time. <laughs> no, he said that on the Exile on the Rolling Stones Exile on Main Street album, mm-hmm. Charlie Watts did the same thing, but with a cardboard box. Jesus. So, um, and so he had read this in a trade magazine. So he thought, let's just try it. And it really didn't take that many takes. I mean, I really think it was just like a, um, a couple takes on, oh, so. on, on getting that and got the timing down, which to me, I think is pretty amazing too. Cause it would be hard for a, a slow rock song, much less doing it on in society and who cares. Absolutely. <laughs> That's insane. No, I mean, the yeah. story is insane. So, yeah. That seven inch comes out, and uh, do you see the popularity go up again, or are you just you're just now you have a legit release, right? Yeah. So so now we're going out and um, you know we're getting shows, and we actually did a Western U.S. Well, I went, yeah, Western U.S. tour of uh, that seven inch. We went to uh, I remember we went up north, so we went up to the Bay Area. Up here, Sacramento, went across to Reno. And that's when we first met Kevin Seconds and that whole Reno scene. And then we cut over to um, Salt Lake City, Denver, back down to um, New Mexico, uh, then uh, Arizona. And we might have played Vegas and then on the way home. So that was that first uh, seven-inch tour was a little loop. And then you're, and are I, you touring in the in a pickup truck? Yeah, that was in the pickup truck. A lot of those photos were from that tour. Um, the crazy thing about that tour was uh, we get to Salt Lake City, and I'm I'm just running super high fever, probably at least a hundred three, if not even hot. I was as sick as a dog. Um, I didn't even know. I mean, I was just in so much pain mm-hmm. and I remember we got, we did a show and, um, those guys actually had to help me put my drum set together oh, because, because I just had literally no strength. I just had enough strength to get, to do the gig. I remember I was slept the entire time before slept right after. I, I think I slept in Salt Lake city for like two days. Jesus. And, <laughs> Got better, finished the rest of the tour, and uh, when I got home, I found out that uh, I had compromised my appendix and actually got my appendix taken out shortly after um, the tour. So uh, definitely could have had some uh, fatal... could have had some fatal, uh, uh, yeah, some bad you know, results there if you didn't, uh, yeah. Take care so of that them. was so so that was that was that was that was uh, you know, some memories there. Um, so uh, that, that that was a that that was a pretty hairy tour, but we made it home. Um, so 
Uh, and just so, you know, people, so we definitely got so, pair. We, so go pe- ahead. Carl, so people know you're touring in a, it's a pickup truck and you have a trailer? Yes. Okay, so it's yeah. two dudes in the front, two dudes in the back of the pickup truck, and then your gear in a right. trailer. Yeah. Well, that's wild. It was, it, it was a Chevy Love. Yeah. So, so, uh, um, yeah, we did, uh, we did uh, all kinds of really crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. Yeah. So, <laughs> can I put you on hold one second? My wife's trying to call me. Yeah, yeah. Go. Okay, sorry. No problem. All right, and we are back. Okay, so uh, yeah, two two guys in the front, two guys in the back, um, all equipment in a trailer. We had bought that. Tra- well, yeah, we bought that trailer in Oxnard. Um, <laughs> just from I don't even know if we saw. Uh, it was just in front of somebody's house. The trailer for sale. I think we paid like a hundred and fifty bucks for it. Oh, so awesome. Uh, and, and we figured, oh, this could fit. It was like a homemade trailer. It was like a U-Haul box trailer, mm-hmm. but it was homemade. It was made of wood. Uh, and uh, um, it, it lasted us that whole first tour. That was, there was no problem with that one. It was when we took it out on the second tour, did we have problems with it? I, or maybe, I don't know if we were on tour or we were going to Arizona. That was it. We did an Arizona trip. And we're so we're going down I ten um, through Indio, and we get a flat tire on this trailer, and the trailer had like really small, you know, trailer wheels. It was like yo, you yeah, know, like for sure. yeah. So we so so we have a flat tire. We didn't have a spare. We didn't even think of getting one of those fix a flats. We didn't know what to do. It was literally in the middle of nowhere. And we thought, well, we've got these shows in Arizona. What are we going to do? So we take all the equipment out, put it in the back of the truck, and we ditch the trailer on the side of the freeway, probably about 100 feet off the side of the road. Yeah. Kind of, we, I think we try to uh, cover it up with uh, some tumbleweeds <laughs> or something. And, and then we think, okay, let's leave it there. Let's go do the shows. And on the way back, let's just figure out what we're going to do. So we go, we do these shows. So now we're going to Arizona with no trailer, all the equipment in the back of the truck. And I think the way we did it then is three of us sat in the front. And one guy, we made one little cubby area in the back for the person to sit in the back. Jesus. All the way to Air, all the way to uh, Tucson or whatever. Yeah. And back. <laughs> <laughs> So we get back and we go back to the spot and we see our trailer still sitting there. And we're thinking, well, okay, it's sitting there, but it doesn't do very good. We're not going to get it fixed. It was probably a Sunday. We thought, well, what do you, what are we going to do? I thought, well, you know, we just, we just left it there. <laughs> and we thought, and we thought, okay, you know what? Let's come back another day. And we'll just book a show next month know, and, and grab and it pick then. It up. What's that? Just book a show next month and grab it then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what we did is we're like, okay, let's come back and we'll go get it. We'll borrow somebody else's truck who's got a bigger truck and we'll try to fit in the back or we'll yeah. try to go into town and get a tire or whatever. So so we're so stupid. We're thinking it's still going to be there. And um, 
it was at least a couple of months till we finally made it back out there. <laughs> and it was just, it was just Tony and I, yeah. it was just Tony and I this time. And we drive out there and they could, and we're all excited. We're just like, Hey, that'd be so cool. If it's still there. Yeah. And we're like, it's going to be there. Who's going to mess with this trailer. That's got a flat tire and stuff. Right. And then we're about, you know, five minutes from away from the spot. And I remember looking at Tony and thinking, Oh, I just had a feeling it's not there. So he says, yeah, me either. We thought, all right, well, so now we go to the spot. And we're pretty sure because it was it was next to this storm drain channel. And I said, okay, I know I know it's gonna be right here. So we get there, and we're looking all over for this thing, and it was gone. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, what do we think? We're gonna leave this trailer on the side of the road two months later. It's gonna still be there. I don't know what the hell we were thinking. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> So the next tour that we go on, uh, we ended up renting. So we take the same truck out, mm-hmm. um, but then we we ended up renting a U-Haul trailer this time. Yeah, and uh, then then we just started having more breakdowns. You know, the clutch went out, uh, engine was overheating, blew a head gasket, blew radiator hoses. We you know we weren't mechanically inclined we had no idea that a little four-cylinder chevy love truck trying to go in the middle you know in the middle of summer or in the heat of summer yes 110 110 all the way out to you know florida and back (laughs) we 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 didn't know that we had to take care of these kind of things i mean we we really didn't and so uh when we finally made it home and looking back we didn't spend a lot of money on repairs but it was every dollar that we had sure so that became, um, yeah, they, <laughs> that was a thing. You know, we we called it the, the disaster. <laughs> yeah, well, it wouldn't be the last. No, no, that was that, you know, and it pretty much set us up for tours to come. Yeah, yeah. So after that, then you go in and you start to do the what happens next LP, right? And. This is the repeat masterpiece. Well, I appreciate that. Now, I, I know I listen to what happens next. Uh, yeah, you know, pretty often. And when I listen to that, I mean, there's songs on there where I even impress myself. I'm thinking, what was I thinking? What what possessed me to even do the drumming like this? Um, you know, and I want to start with the song Oxnard because I remember hearing John talk about that is I remember the exact moment we thought of the song, we were at my sister's house and John just says, you know, we got to write a song that just is a, you know, a chant for Oxnard, you know, just something like, well, and I told, I remember joking with him, what? Something like Oxnard. He said, exactly. I mean, and that's exactly what the song is. So once again, so with my limited guitar knowledge, you know, probably the next time I was, you know, at practice, I was, hey, I was asked him, hey, Tony, let me see that. And I, and I just strummed the, the chords for Oxnard. Yeah. And uh, he came up with the guitar riff at the beginning. Yeah. And, um, you know, so that's really how the birth of Oxnard came through. And then uh, what happens next? You know, that song, you know, is this a... It's just a I blast even, of fury. I couldn't even under, I couldn't even describe 
the drumming on that song. It's not like anything I've ever seen, and it's definitely not anything I've ever heard or I've ever done before. Yeah, I'd like to see someone, someone needs to try to put it down into sheet music. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't even tell you what time it's in um, or, or anything like that. And, and, and what I do on that song is I don't even play like a regular. I mean, there's parts of it where I'm playing a beat, but the meat of the song, I'm just hitting cymbals. Like I'm doing cymbals and drag rolls and, and, and flams just in this big, giant whirlwind of circle the entire time. I mean, that that's like what the drum, and I don't know what made me think that was the drumming that needed to be on that song. Well, maybe the song is a tornado. So you're just yeah. you know, literally working your set like a tornado. Yeah. I mean, that's what, I mean, I don't know if there's any video of me playing that back then because I would love to see, cause I don't even know what that even looked like. <laughs> um, and then, uh, you know, one of my favorite songs on that album is wayward. Okay. And Wayward, to me, if I was going to depict, you know, the musical genius of ill repute, it was Wayward. I mean, the stops and the starts um, is just, you know, and those weren't um, produced in the studio. Those, I mean, those were real starts and stops that we were doing on the fly at 240 beats per minute. Um, and, and I don't even, once again, I don't know what maybe you think, oh, hey, let's start the song like this. <laughs> Who thinks of that? I mean, I don't even know what even made me think of that song in that way. Yeah, it's ahead of its time. It's like, it could, right. be, it could be a precursor to like what a lot of the, the power violence bands did. And, and a lot of the starts and the stops, it's like, uh, you know, once you move beyond Uniform Choice and you get into like the Youth of Today's and like the the late mid to late eighties straight edge stuff. Like a lot of that music is, is predicated on starts and stops. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is, this is very early for hitting hitting starts and stops like that in fast music. Exactly. And, and Jimmy's bass playing, I'll, I'll, I'll go on record and say he was, you know, he was doing bass lines that, you know, once again at super fast speed and just you know he was right you know once again self-taught and one of the things i really liked about our band was just creating that all together you know then, yeah, then everyone's, you go everyone's kicking in right because because jim wrote book in his cover right right and he also was the the mastermind behind cherokee nation mm. so little known fact about jimmy he was a huge fan of 60s pop music. So I remember in the earlier days of Ill Repute, him just listening to a lot of old 60s music or early 70s music and just trying to figure out which of these songs can we make into a punk rock song. Well, he so chose Cher- a good one. So Cherokee Nation was one. Cherry Cherry by Neil Diamond was another one. Um there were some other songs that we were playing with, but we just never came to a good uh, production or, or arrangement. But Cherokee was one where we just figured out, we listened to the song a couple times on his record player. We kind of figured out, okay, well, this is how we're going to, here's how we're going to do it and arrange it. And um, yeah, his bass lines on that song are just freaking incredible. I, I really think... Uh, he, I don't know, 
underrated or not. He was just very, very good. And and we were so new to the whole music writing thing and and understanding what a bass player, you know, as a rhythm section was supposed to do. We never really followed each other in a format that most rock bands do. We just kind of played what we thought was good for us. And I, um, I, I at one time actually compared our musicality to like the who the band the who i mean because each guy's playing an instrument he's like jimmy isn't backing up yeah he's not following the kick drum to add meat to the sound he's just like getting wild he's just getting wild i'm doing my thing tony's keeping it all down with the rhythm guitar you know john with his singing style you know brings it all together and that's that's to me is what became the the beauty of ill repute as, yeah. as, as, a, as a songwriting core, um, I know in the first seven inch we gave each other we we each took individual credit for the songs that we wrote. Mm-hmm. But when we did what happens next, we all songs were written by Ill Repute as a band. Yeah, and and you just are a band by then, right? Like yeah, and you'd been it's just it's obvious that you guys played together so much, and and that is like the. The culmination of ill repute is what happens next. I, it's, right. it's inarguable that it's the best thing. Yeah, you know, until bleed, which I also love. <laughs> yeah, but you uh, know, those you know, those yourself they, they they did some good stuff on that too. Yeah, I lo- I love a lot of that. So, what happens next comes out, and uh, what happens then? Like, do you, do you is there another popularity boost? Like, are you? Oh yeah. So by this time, we're playing Olympic Auditorium, I and mean, we're like main support for you know bands and we were playing you know that and i think as we started getting more gigs with the bigger la bands you know we're headlining a couple shows of our own uh you know we're going on that second tour um yeah we're basically you know it just becomes a blur because we're just playing so many shows we're getting feedback we're getting radio airplay you know clean cut american kids still being played out there even more but then college radio stations are picking up you know um what happens next album and they're playing that all over uh booking his cover and and cherokee to, and and fill it up just become you know staples for you know stations to play oxnard starts getting played all over the place so we're playing a lot more um and the the entire idea was to come out with another album and some of those songs ended up on the Nardcore uh, first Nardcore compilation, and you know. Um, yeah, I mean, you have a song on every Mystic comp, basically. Yeah, yeah. So, so we're playing that. We're we're uh, uh, you know, Sleepwalking Two's written. Uh, another song that I wrote was, which I still I I underappreciate is it's not going to happen to me. Oh, I love that song. Yeah. So. Uh, John wrote the lyrics to that, but I wrote all the lyric, uh, all the music to that, the slow part and the fast part and the slow part. Now that was definitely heavily influenced by uh, Minor Threat, um, but uh, you know those are songs, and we did a couple other songs live that we wanted to have on the album. So we had, I'd say we probably had enough music for about seventy-five percent of another album. Uh, we did a song called Stop and Think, which is on the Halloween Live album, and Change, which ended up being on the uh, Best of Demo Tape. Um, so, we, yeah, we probably had 
I don't know, six, seven, eight more songs that we could have put out on another album. And we were kind of working toward that. And that was when uh, the conflict of do we go on tour again uh, had risen. And those three guys said, no, let's go on tour again. And it was funny because me and Doug Moody were the only ones who said, don't go on tour right now. So um, I decided I decided not to go on tour. And so this is right before the Scared Straight tour. Yes, yes, it was right before the Scared Straight tour. Because you Uh, don't go, you don't go, but Scott Rudinsky plays drums for our right. Yeah, and I had a regular job too, which you know I'm you know 35 years later into public works. (laughs) <laughs> engineering sure. and maintenance you know that was the beginning and i was like well you know if we don't have an album to tour on then i'm not going to take time off to go if we're not going to be and and i was so ignorant of how how the process worked anyway looking back i probably thought you know i should we should have just gone on tour again because we were would have really killed it you know, a year later after what happens next and got out and touring the full U.S., you know, doing a full U.S. tour the right way. Um, right. So what, you know, what happens next comes out in 84. When does that tour take place? The tour I did not go on was in 1985. Okay. It was almost so a, a year, year later. After. Yeah. So um, I didn't uh, so I didn't go on tour, but I didn't leave the band either. I said, well, I'm not going to go. So that's what they got Scott to play. And I kept track with them and, and they would call me, you know, or, or their, they would call their girlfriends and their girlfriends would call my girlfriend. And so, so I would, I was pretty much knowledgeable of what they were doing. Sure. You know, you know, so I, I was keeping track of them and, you know, and you know, wishing them the best. Hey, I hope everything's good. And they tell me, yeah, we're here in Detroit. And this, you know, this, this, this show got really killer and stuff. So, you know, they, they let me know right away when the stuff got stolen, too. It wasn't like they were hiding it from me. And when they came home, I was just still part of the band, and we had gigs in L.A., and I played them. Right. And so do you keep going strong through 86, 87? Uh, no, pretty much through 85 and maybe 86. And that's when it just started getting to be a little bit more so omelet uh, com- comes out in 85 and that's kind of like a, a, comp- like a, a compilation of a lot of the comp tracks and so forth and, right and cherry pick songs off each record right um, and so you're going through 86 you think like yes. in the end of 86 i'd say yeah. by mid 80 mid well let me think so in 86 february of 86 uh i got married to my first wife okay and my son was born, so I know at that time we were not playing. Okay. So, and, and uh, how, because, like, how was it, how is the scene? Is it like, is it strong? I, in- no, I think at that time it started getting a little bit more violent. I mean, I think that was when uh, there's a lot of reports of us playing, and then people are just watching out for their backs because you know fights are just starting out in the crowd, left and right. And is, and, is that L.A. or is that Oxnard as well? I don't remember in Oxnard as much, but definitely in L.A. And that just became the prevalent thing that was going on there. There was talks of certain bands being, you know, attracting a gang element. I think the, uh, you know, the, unfortunately due to the popularity of the 
what happens next album with the skinhead on the cover, you know, a lot of the Nazi racist skinheads started uh, showing up our shows, not, not thinking that we were the skinhead band too, but it just, I think they started to like our songs <laughs> and showing up too. And then crowds just wouldn't like that. So then more fights start. And I think we just kind of quit playing. I mean, I don't even, I didn't do a lot of our booking. Yeah. It was all of a sudden we just quit playing and there just weren't shows for, we, we decided we're not going to play right now. Do you and think you so, quitting playing though? Was, was it reactionary to that stuff or was it just because you were kind of becoming a little more of an adult? I think it was a little bit of both. I, I think we, you know, Tony had his son, you know, my son and Tony's oldest son that passed away um, very close in age. I mean, they're actually, you know, six weeks apart from each other. Yes. Yeah, so you guys so both I, have a kid. In, in so 80s, we both so. have kids. Right. So, you know, we're all taking a little bit of a turn into the family life, or at least Tony and I were. Mm-hmm. And that became, obviously it becomes a major focus of things. So um, that becomes, you know, obviously more important and being around violent shows becomes less important. Sure. Okay. So then what do you do for the next couple of years? Or there's, there's a handful of years before you get back in and do transition. Right. So um, at that time, I remember, you know, John started going to guitar school and we're still hanging out. I mean, I remember going down and visiting John at the, at his school and stuff. And, um, you know, we're, I think, you know, a couple of years goes by and he said, Hey, I got a couple songs I want to try out. Do you want to jam? And well, then before this, Carl, like, do you guys yeah. still play like once a year or anything? Or do you still jam no, like I, twice I a year? I, I don't even think we did in 86 and 87. Um, I don't think we, we did. I don't, we didn't play any shows that okay. I recall at all. And then, so he's off at guitar school and we decide that, uh, Hey, let's, you know, let's jam. John says, Hey, I got some new songs I wrote on a jam. And, and that was pretty much the transition album. But in addition to that transition album, we had made a whole different other album of other stuff that Tony was writing as well. Pretty much just rock music. It was not punk rock at all. Um, I'd say the most punk rock song that we even played during that time was a song on the transition album called Burnin. Okay. <laughs> you know, and that's not even that or, or Sleepwalking 3. You know, those, those, those are probably the closest thing to punk rock songs. We were just, uh, uh, we, we just turned into a rock band. You well, know, there's, we, there's two songs on transition and I'm not super familiar with the record. I have it. I just, I don't listen to it a lot cause it's not that good, but, <laughs> right. but there is two songs that Tony sings on that are really good. And I, I Burnin, don't, Burnin's I don't know the probably names. one of them. Burnin's probably there, one of them. And there's another, there's like, cause I listened to it last week or a couple weeks ago and there's, right. there's legitimately two good songs of Tony singing that are like right. good, good songs. Right. So that, and, and, and there was a whole nother, probably eight other songs that we had recorded as well in the, in the whole, uh, in, in the recording sessions, we were going down to San Diego probably every other week um, <laughs> to the newer to Mystic. record uh, you know, when Mystic moved down there. And we recorded these songs 
you know, and I don't know if we we had the intention of coming out with another album. I mean, they offered to write, you know, you guys want to come out with an album? We said, well, all right, well, let's, let's record them. And we recorded all these songs. And once again, it wasn't until the final mix that we just thought, we can't release this stuff. I mean, no, that was, we just dawned on us that one, it wasn't really that good because we weren't talented enough to pull off the songs. I think if we played those songs today, Mm -hmm. or, or, or if we gave them to another band, it would probably be decent. I mean, it's not going to be a great album, but it, it'd be decent. Um, you know, I remember Jimmy saying one time, we were just trying to be a band. You know, we, we just, I, we recorded a video of us uh, practicing these songs in uh, John's, uh, you know, rec room that he was working at. So we were going, we were practicing there like, every other Sunday and we would, we would record ourselves. <laughs> so there's a video of us playing these songs. Um, and, and, you know, we had fun playing them and we didn't think anything about, you know, our fans aren't going to like this. And we would work on it just like we worked on other songs. We would arrange them the best that we could. Uh, we would practice what we can. And you could tell John was getting a little bit better at guitar. Um, and Tony singing a little bit more too. And, um, yeah, so we had every intention of, uh, um, just recording these songs. And then, uh, when we, we pulled the plug on it, mystic said, no, you guys got to come out with something. So which of these songs do you want on there? <laughs> so yeah. what came out in transition actually ended up being the best representation of us at that time that could actually be presented on an album. But it's only and about I, half of the songs that you recorded. Yeah, yeah. You, it was only about every, half of the. You have everything else. I do have everything else. I found an old cassette tape, you know, from when we were mixing, mm -hmm. um, and I, I converted that digitally. So maybe that's my. Uh, I could hold that over the band's head for ransom. It's like, hey, I could always release this because I'm sure I have the only, you know, digital <laughs> copy of this stuff. But it was funny, is. There was a time where Tony and I wanted to go down to Mystic and try to find the original um, tapes yeah. because we were always afraid that Mystic was going to release that stuff. Yeah. And which is still a, a fear, I guess. Um, we never found them. But, uh, yeah, we, we went down to Doug Moody's house and Doug couldn't uh, – um, Doug couldn't stay with us for the weekend, but he let us stay in the house. And Tony and I looked all over that place for those, for those uh, tapes. And I we think a bunch it. of stuff was destroyed. Wasn't it like the, the sound of California? What was that? It was something. Oh, right. Like there was right. a fire. Right. Yeah. I've heard of that. So hopefully it got destroyed there, but I did happen to have one cassette tape. Of that, and actually, well, I'm glad you have it. So, it's a bunch of the stuff with Tony singing. Yeah, yeah, it's Tony and you know both both Tony and John singing songs that I guarantee nobody else has ever heard outside of our band and our closest family or friends who heard this demo tape. Well, Carl, I hope you you uh, spread the love. You know. Yeah. I, I no, so I'll, I've got yeah. So that was that was a uh, you know that I and I didn't even know I had it. I think I was cleaning out one of my moves. I found what's this cassette tape? Sure. I played it. I thought, oh my god, this is the we we called we had a song called New Day. Okay. And we thought this is the New Day stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the but New you Day sessions. Even, 
Yeah, even when you listen to it, because the tape is so warped, you can just tell it's so slowed down. I mean, it's definitely not an E. I wouldn't even say it's an you know, E-flat. It's probably closer to a detuning by the time you listen to it. Wow. But it, but it's pretty up. You know, there's some upbeat songs. John wrote some cool songs. Um, but it was it was definitely rock. It was not punk rock anymore. Yeah, so what happens after transition? Because it's still... You take four years until Big Rusty Balls comes out. Yeah, so so somewhere along there, we end up playing that riot show, uh, which was infamous for um, Jimmy basically starting a fight out in the crowd. Well, tell the story. So where's where's this show at? This is in downtown L.A. Okay. at like a community center, okay. in literally in downtown L.A. and. Uh, so we're playing, and it was supposed to be the return of ill repute because now this is the first show. This is, I think, in 1988. So this is the first show that we've played in at least two and a half years. And and this is and, be, so, but 88 is before transition. So you think well, it would have been right after transition? Okay, probably. so sometime in 89. Yeah. Okay. So um, so we're so we get the show, and <laughs> now we did know that Operation IV was opening for us. And if you find, if you see the flyer, one of the other um, opening bands in real small print says The Offspring. <laughs> so, so it's The Offspring, Operation IV, you know, that says from San Francisco, and us. And so those those two bands play, and you know, they got Hell a good a crowd going. Yeah, so they, they got a good crowd going. And we have a few of our friends from Oxnard are with us, and we're playing, and... We, we were playing a lot of transition stuff, but we knew we were going to play the old staples. You know, we were going to play um, Laugh It Off was in there. Uh, we were going to play, you know, we were going to play Fuck With My Head and Sleepwalk. And they were coming up, but the first few songs were all new songs. And we even opened up with Led Zeppelin's Rock and Roll. I don't know why, but we just did. <laughs> and so the crowd's just kind of like speechless at us. <laughs> and, and, and 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 I guess there was a donation box of clothes or something there, and they just started throwing clothes at us. I mean, I don't know if they were really trying to hit us at first. To me, I just thought they were just screwing around. Right. And I remember Jimmy just turning to me. He says, "One more fucker throws some up on stage. I'm gonna deck him." <laughs> he just tells. He just says that to me in between songs. And I'm like, "All right, whatever." So. Uh, we start playing a song. I, I, I and I think it was "Laugh It Off." And you know, and because I remember so we were playing it, and somebody throws a jacket, and it lands right on Jimmy's bass. Oh. Uh, and, and and so in the middle of the song, Jimmy just puts his bass in the in the guitar stand, and the rest of us are still playing. He goes out in the crowd, nails a guy, and then the guy, just the guy's friend, tries to. Um, jump in. Mm-hmm. Jim nails him, knocks him out, and then Jim just walks back up on stage like, okay, let's get back to business. <laughs> <laughs> Within seconds, there's this mob riot goes on. People are up on stage trying to beat us up. I remember just seeing Jimmy with his, with his bass in his hand by the neck and just swinging it. <laughs> just, just, just swinging it all over the place. And I remember somebody got a microphone 
and I got hit in the head with a microphone. I see people come at me, so now I got my cymbal stands, and I'm just swinging people. I'm just swinging to just keep people away. Yeah. And then uh, at the last, you know, I look over, and Tony's trying to keep peace and trying to you know protect what he could on stage. And then all of a sudden, I didn't see Tony anymore, and they had uh, those steel bay doors for these auditoriums, and they, they slid it down just to protect us from the crowd. Jeez. And they were like, what the hell's happened? So during this riot part, Op IV and Offspring, they're gone. Yeah. There's like, who knows what the hell happened? I mean, they just took off. They weren't going to stick around for this. Sure. And so now we're gathering up our equipment, and we're like, where's Tony? I don't know. Well, let's get out of here. So we get all of our stuff, and then um, me, Jim, and John, and whoever was with us, uh, we go meet up at a bar somewhere, just kind of decompress and think, what the deal, what the hell just happened? <laughs> and we still had no idea what happened to Tony. Sure. And I don't think it was until the next day that we find out that he got a beer can, full beer can thrown at his face, point blank, oh and it God. split his lip wide open. Uh-huh. So he was in the emergency room the oh, whole time. Shit. And if you ever see, next time you see Tony, you can see he still has a scar on that, on his lip. Oh man! So, so, so that was it. We just kind of, well, you know, that didn't go very well. And, <laughs> that was the uh, return of your repute. <laughs> yeah, so that was. So we just didn't even talk to each other. I mean, we literally didn't play again for another couple years. Yeah, but then in the early '90s, you guys start playing. Like, it, it has to be before Big Rusty Balls comes out, right? You guys are right. getting all this traction, playing Mogs and and killing right. it in so, like Ventura. Yeah. So what happens is the next couple, you know, so a couple years goes by again. And, uh, uh, Tony calls me up one day and he says, Hey, I got all these new songs. You want to jam? And around the same time, you know, I think John said, Hey, I got these songs too. Let's, let's, let's start jamming. And I thought, all right, well, let's just call Jimmy also. And then we just started up with a whole new, you know, the whole big rusty balls era of, of songs. And, uh, um, we, we determined as a band that we, we weren't going to be a rock band anymore. You know, punk, punk rock had progressed, you know, dramatically just in that four or five year break that we had in recording. You know, so we, we ended up playing a lot of the songs from the Big Rusty Balls album before it was recorded. Right. Now, uh, one of the things, you know, so, yeah, so we're playing mocks and we were still playing locally. I don't, we didn't, weren't going to LA or anything. We just played in Ventura. Uh, I remember so we opened for Green Day somewhere along the line in, um, in Ventura at the old Pussycat Theater, which doesn't even exist anymore mm-hmm. over on Santa Clara Street. Um, so we're, so we're doing shows and, and uh, trying to figure out, you know, how these songs, you know, we were basically arranging a whole new album. Now, the very first song on the album, A Big Rusty Balls, is called Hold On. The original version of that, and this is one you were talking to John about, I have that original version, and the version was actually called Stand, and the lyrics were really more about uh, standing for peace instead of standing for violence. Mm-hmm. It's the same exact music, um, and we had recorded this demo tape with Jerry Finn. So we did four songs on the demo tape, and uh, by the time we went in the studio uh, to do Big Rusty Balls, Tony says, no, I got a whole new vocal pattern. 
and we changed the song, the song lyrics. I mean, the music was still the same. Sure. Um, but we hooked up with Jerry because uh, Jerry was had a punk rock band. Um, oh, what was the name of their band? I, uh, it, it, it was kind of like a more of a psychedelic rock band. Jerry was a really yeah. good drummer, but he was going to recording school at, at that time. And um, when we were getting to getting ready to record, uh, I think John was hanging out with Jerry a lot and says, Hey, well, let's ask Jerry Finn to see if he'll do it. <laughs> we asked, we offered Jerry a hundred dollars to record us. <laughs> and, and, and so he took it and, and, and since he had um, connections with studios, he would get us in, but we'd have to go like an off hours when nobody else was recording and stuff. So sure. we, we recorded the demo and uh, we kind of, shop that demo around and that's how we got on dr strange and he was like sure i'll take you guys um and also uh fat mike had got a copy of it and he wanted he wanted to produce this as well and um for us it was a you know it was a hard decision but it wasn't really that hard i mean look back and think wow we could have been one of fat Mike. you know we could have been on fat records you know in the earlier days but they were the early days of Fat Records, so we didn't know. And plus, it was a guy that used to open for us. I mean, No Effects used to open for us, and No Effects had gotten big, but we didn't know the value of Fat Mike's record-producing um, talents. And so we thought, well, let's just go with you know Doctor Strange because he already had a couple other bands. Uh, he was doing uh, Voodoo Glow Schools, and he had just signed Face to Face. I right. think for their for their first LP, and also we went Doctor Strange, and we were happy with that. I mean, we were happy with working with Jerry again. Uh, I think he created the magic on that Big Rusty Balls album. I think it's a, you know, I listen to that album quite often. I think the production's very good. I think the songwriting's good. Um, yeah, Jamie Just six songs. Jamie Just, yeah, you know, I remember you know, Jim wrote that, and I think uh, you know. Um, yeah, a lot of the songs on there, you know, it really showcased Tony as a better singer, and John's guitar playing was so much better as well. So we were really excited about that. I remember when we took the picture for the Big Ricey Balls, I remember we had to climb a fence, and, and uh, you know, because those Big Ricey Balls were over on uh, Harbor Boulevard, and we had to go over a barbed wire just to get in there, and, and where it spray-painted big rusty balls that was real spray paint it wasn't photoshopped at yeah, all yeah. <laughs> so we had, we had a great time uh recording that again practicing for it and you know then we started getting a lot more shows with that um and we thought okay this is it we're gonna we're gonna do this again you know we're we're, we're, we're a band and, and and we're gonna do this yeah and then you just take off and play some more and then break up. <laughs> it didn't last that <laughs> yeah, long, exactly, right? Yeah. Well, that was that whole thing with uh, the Portland trip and the tour and John yeah, so, going surfing. So, and, what's your take on it? What's your take on it? Well, I remember vividly. You know, we're we're, we're sitting down and said, "Hey, we're going to get these shows." And and I remember John just saying, "Hey, I, I've got these these uh, I got these plate tickets to Europe," and and we're like, "You know, we just came out with this album." So why would you make these plans? Because you know we want a tour. 
And, and, he, and, and, and it wasn't like he was just going to be gone for a week or so. I mean, it was like a month and it was like in the, it was right after the album had gotten released and too. He said, well, you know, this is the formula. This is how it is. And he says, yeah, but I've got non-refundable tickets. And, and he told us that, and John had always gone to uh, Europe, you know, for the, you know, part of the summer in the four or five years that we didn't go playing, which was fine. Right. But now that we, uh, you know, had a new album, there's a reason why we need to stick around for the summer. And he says, well, I need to go. And I remember the words was, well, and he, and he was saying, so you guys are kicking, kicking me out of the band. And we said, no, we're not kicking you out of the band. You're making a choice and you're choosing to go to Europe now instead of, you know, going on the road with us. And he felt it was an ultimatum. We just felt like he was making a choice and we said, well, we're going to keep doing this. So we went to um, Portland, Oregon. It was this huge punk festival. It was three days. I don't know how many bands played. I mean, probably, you know, it was a mini, uh, uh, it was a mini Lollapalooza, mini warp tour before they even had them. Right. And we, you know, we were, we played like right under, I think channel three on one, one of the days. I mean, we were, we were pretty high up there and, you know, and we, you know, there's probably a thousand kids there, you know, probably just wondering where the hell John is. And so we, we tried to pull it off with Tony as a lead singer. Yeah. You three piece, did you three piece or did you get yeah, a rhythm? That guitars? show we did a three piece, yeah. but then by the time we went on tour, we ended up getting Mike Vallejo from circle one. And we tried out a bunch of other different guitarists and it just didn't, it didn't pan out. I mean, we tried our best. Tony did a great job. I mean, I think. Um, so you did a tour, though. Yeah, so we did a tour. We how, went all the way big? to the East Coast. Oh, geez. We went from here all. Well, we did two separate tours. So we did the western half of the United States. We went all the way up to Seattle mm-hmm. and looped back down uh, through Colorado, back to, I think, West Texas, like El Paso, back home. And that's a three-piecing one. With the so that, one, show we, on the, that one we did with Mike Vallejo. Okay, also. so the Portland was a one-off, and then you did the West. Yeah, the Portland was a one-off, came home, and then we did a tour again. Okay. And I think I think when we came home, well, no, okay, so we did a tour in two halves. So we did the Western half first, came home again, and then we were getting ready to go for the, the, the Eastern half of the United States. John was home by that time. Mm-hmm. And I had a conversation with John years later, and he said he would have gone on tour with us. But I think at that time there was egos in play, and we were waiting for the first person to apologize. Right. And nobody ever did, so we ended up going without John. But you know, hearing from John later on, he he admitted that he would have gone if we had asked. Yeah. But we never asked, and so we went on the second half, and that was all the way – Cross to Texas, straight up from Texas all the way to Minnesota, cross Minnesota to New York and Connecticut, then all the way down the eastern seaboard down to Florida, and then come home. And uh, so that tour was going okay. We had a big show. We had a couple big shows. I remember one in uh, Oklahoma and one in Connecticut. Those were probably the two biggest shows. Um, and you know, met up with Billy Joe from Green Day, came and saw us in Minnesota. So that was, that was kind of cool. Uh, he had stayed at my house um, earlier in the year, so he kind of 
he, he kind of knew that we were going to be in Minnesota. He was going to be in Minnesota at the same time. So he came and saw us. Um, Jimmy and I had a falling out in Minnesota and I wanted to come home. I wanted to, I just wanted to stop the tour. It wasn't going well. We were starting getting shows canceled because they started getting word that John wasn't with us. So a lot of promoters started pulling out and, um, you know, we did our best we could as a band, but by that time, um, you know, my, my son was at home. His, you know, he was already seven or eight at this time. Uh, his mother, who was supposed to be watching him, who had, I, I had already divorced, she wasn't uh, doing a very good job watching him. So I'm worried about him the entire time, too. So, um, you know, coming home, I just thought, you know, I need to take care of my son. You know, yeah. this, this wasn't, it wasn't working out for me anymore. It wasn't fun. That, that was really what it was. It just wasn't fun anymore. And so you leave the band. So I left the band at that time. Yeah. And then what do you, you play with them again? They get back together in like 2000 to do some one-off so, shows. So, so, so during that 2000 time, they wanted to do a reunion show or, a benefit show for it was either it was either for Henry when Henry Knowles passed away or Mark Hickey is one of those two. I think it was Henry. They were going to do. Uh, they wanted to get together for a reunion show. So I'm thinking, okay, I'll do it. And so we start practicing, and it was me and Tony and John, and we get this other guy Fred Dixon to play bass. Uh, which I had just met Fred and we, when we only play the old stuff, we're just basically playing uh, the seven inch and the what happens next album. We just go through and we're just, we're just playing and we're just practicing these songs and we were having so much fun. We were just sort of laughing. Uh, we were showing up for practice and just trying our best to get through these songs and, and it was starting to sound really good. And then someone was going to book us for, a reunion show, Return of Ill Repute show opening for um, Guttermouth at the Ventura Theater. So at that time, Jimmy gets wind that we're playing again. And so he says, hey, why, why aren't you having me play in the band? And so we talked to him and we said, hey, okay, well, if you're going to show up for practice and here's where we're going to be you know, with your equipment, then you know, we'll see how it goes. So we so now the four of us practice a couple times and I'll admit it sounded really good. We were just better. Yeah. So, um, so then, uh, what happened was the show got canceled or, or something happened at the Ventura theater and they couldn't do it that night and they got moved to a different venue. Um, and then that show got canceled. And at that time, I was just like, you know, tried, you know, it was sounded good, but I'm not just, I'm not going to keep putting this effort in to something that I don't know where this is going. Um, you know, there's reports. And at that time I had become, I don't want to call it religious, but I become a, I became a student of the Bible at that time. And that just became my focus, you know, and I was attending, you know, our Bible fellowship regularly. And then I was remarried and that, and, um, you know, that just became my whole focus and then playing in the band wasn't a, a priority anymore. And even though those practices were fun, when things just started falling apart, 
I really just thought it was revelation from God that I didn't need to be playing with them anymore. (laughs) Now that's, that's the truth. I just felt like, okay, these are signs. The first time, yeah, maybe God told me not to rock. Yeah, exactly. You know, take a break from these guys right now. And then, then that's where they found Chuck later on. And I always supported them. I, you know, even though moved away, even back when I was still living down there, whenever LRP would play, I'd always try to show up, uh, became really close with Chuck. There's no hard feelings. We talk all the time. Um, I'm really, I'm really proud of Chuck and he's, he's kept my style in most of the drumming, you know, at least 90, 95% of it. I mean, he's I, such I'll a, go, he's such an unsung hardcore hero. Yeah. No, he is. And and when I watch him play, I mean, some of these songs, like I said, like with Wayward or some of these other songs, I, and I'll and I'll listen and I'll watch how he plays it. And I'm thinking, hey, he got that part really. I mean, he, he's almost doing exactly what I would have done, which um, not that I'm saying it was really hard, but he had he had done that. He he didn't try to make the songs his own. He really tried to play the songs in the ill repute style and, and, and really in my style of drumming, which I think is the reason why they still sound very good to this day, because he's just still there. They didn't try to slow it down for him or anything like that. Well, so, yeah, you, you have to play the wild beat, right? Like you can't just do a straight fast beat on some of those songs. It just doesn't work. Right. It just doesn't work. Right. Right. So, so no, and that's so, a, yeah. that's amazing for him to come in and be selfless like that, and and it's weird to be the new European guy, right? When he's been in the band for almost twenty years now. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And he's still he's still a new guy. The one thing I've always appreciated about these guys too, especially Tony, is that he's kept me involved with what I call the business side of ill repute, mm-hmm. um, like when the documentary and the book were being written and developed. He, Tony and I had talked about doing a book years before that. And so we had gotten a lot of notes down together because he, he, at the time when he was still talking to Doug Moody, Doug, you know, said, Hey, I want to do an ill repute book. So Tony knew that I would have the stories and the memory. So there was a few weekends in a row where Tony would just hang out and we would hang out and we just start writing the stuff down and figuring, you know, what happened here, what happened there and, you know, what happened next, you know, no pun intended, yeah. <laughs> but it's kind of like what, what we did. So he kept me in the business side of things. So then when the, the documentary was being developed by Stan, Tony would call me and say, Hey, this guy wants to do a book and documentary else. You want to meet with us here. And, and so you know, I would go and, you know, meet with him. So he kept me involved with that. Then with, you know, the Netflix shows glow and stranger things. He's keeping me involved with that. So now we've got head of steam going. And then when the documentary came out, I remember, uh, Jeff Hershey was saying how he'd love to get this thing promoted, you know, at a, at a high level. And at the time when I was working at the city of Ventura, one of my coworkers happened to be the mayor or a council member at the city of Port Wainini. And I don't remember if I came up with the idea or Jeff came up with the idea. He goes, Hey, do you ever, is there a way you can get like a key to the city or something like that? <laughs> and I said, I don't know if you can get key to the city, but they have these things called proclamations and they give these out to people who do significant things for the community. So I talked to um, the council member, his name was Ellis Green. And he and I were pretty close at the city of Ventura. I said, Hey, I got a, personal question you're on the council 
would you consider giving our band a proclamation? And he says, well, what for? He didn't know anything about punk rock. And I, so I start giving him the whole history of ill repute and how we all grew up in the area. And it created this whole music scene. And, um, you know, now they're doing a book and a documentary on us. So it would be really cool. So he ends up talking to the council and one of the council, well, the mayor at the time, his name was John Sharkey, was an old rocker and knew who we were. <laughs> I mean, he was an older guy. I mean, he's got to be like in his early 70s now. But if, And he was just like, so he was excited. And so Ellis tells me, you know, a couple of weeks later, uh, you know, work is, he goes, okay, write something up. We'll get it through council and I'll give you a date. And then he says, okay, you got exact date, April 7th. We're going to give you a proclamation. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, uh, we get there and I, I have video of that and the council chambers was packed. I mean, it was, it was so packed that we found out that from friends who showed up a little late and we're just hanging out outside. Yeah. Out there on Ventura Road because they couldn't get in. Yeah, I mean it was it was literally standing room only. I remember one of the council members saying, uh, "You know, I've never seen so many tattoos in my life." <laughs> <laughs> but you know, to me, so so you know, my point was that you know Tony had always kept me involved with those kind of things. Yeah, well, to finish the, to finish that story, Carl, that's that's when uh, the first ill repute day got called, right? Right. Yeah. Just so, because not everyone that listens to the pod knows everything. Right. Yeah. So that became the ill repute day, April 7th, 2014. Tony had special buttons made, you know, and they gave us a proclamation basically commending us for our musical achievements, you know, in, you know, in creativity, you know, in the city of Port Wyneme. Right. Uh, So now every, every, April seventh. April seventh is the repute day. Is the repute day, right? And, and 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 it's kind of a I don't want to say it's cheesy, Bill, but it's kind of cool that we got this proclamation and we think how many bands get a proclamation? I don't think it's cheesy at all. It's so rad. Yeah. So so um, you know that was exciting. That was exciting. Yeah. And then the then the official documentary and and book come out short that that same year. I mean months later. Uh, so it's now. You know, I'm kind of connected with the band without playing with the band anymore, and 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 that still just became satisfying to me. I mean, you know, um, you know they're doing their thing, and I keep track of them. I try to see them when I can. Um, you know, but I'm, you know, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty content where I'm at now too. Well, you moved. Yeah, so we moved to so I got remarried and I moved up here to San Jose, and. Uh, uh, I, you know, whenever a Nardcore band comes through the Bay Area, uh, I always go and see them. Seeing the Grim up here, uh, uh, I'm trying to think. Stalag 13 played here not too long ago. Fist Fight on Ecstasy was here a couple times. I went out and saw them. Um, you know, not a Nardcore band. Walk Proud, who was instrumental in our return in the early '90s, mm-hmm. played up here. I went and saw them. I'm uh, really close with Jeff Hershey. So whenever Night Demon comes up to the Bay Area, uh, I go see them as well. Drink so, from the chalice. Yeah. Shout out, Jeff. Yeah. So, Jarvis, Jarvis, my bad. Yeah. 
So, so uh, whenever you know bands like that come here, Doctor No played up here not not too long ago. Went and saw them at Gilman Street. So just thrill, still try to see them. I started drumming in a uh, Scottish bagpipe band in a competitive uh, Scottish bagpipe band as a as a on their drum corps. Well, that's pretty rad. Yeah, yeah. So that you know that's like the hardest drumming I've ever done. I have to practice to be good at it. Uh, and then the other side thing I've done musically, I started teaching at School of Rock. Oh, cool. So there's a School of Rock that's literally about two, less than two miles from my house. Um, and that was my way of giving back to kids. I mean, these are kids from 7 to 17 in varied levels of talent. Um, and... You know, all the other instructors are like working musicians and stuff. And even when I, they asked me why I want to work there, I said, well, I got a regular day job, but I, just, you know, this is what I've done musically. And I just want to be around and teach kids what it's like to be in a band. So whenever they get squirrely, I sit them down and I tell them old man story time. And I tell them the stories of ill repute <laughs> and what it was like to be forming a band you know, getting on, you know, being on the radio, making records, uh, touring, you know, sleeping in the back of a van or a pickup truck, you know, and, and, and having riots, you know, start at a show that you're at. Um, some of the kids are really talented. Uh, will probably will be professional musicians some days and other kids are just there, you know, parents drop them off and we, we end up babysitting them for our, an hour or so so um but it's fun i mean it's it's great to see these kids do these songs and and pull them off really well we had a girl in our school a couple years ago there's a international competition called hit like a girl Mm -hmm. uh it's a drum drum competition and she actually won it all right came from our school so um yeah, so it's kind of cool. So there's so there's some good talent coming out there, and so I I usually you know I've been teaching there a couple two or three nights a week uh, after work just for a couple lessons. I'll give private lessons to the to some drummers, and then we do group lessons as well. And we just do some you know depending on the age level, we'll do um, some songs you know easy songs, hard songs uh, from all different eras of rock. And uh, so it's funny to try to see a 10 year old kid try to play Blink 182 or, you know, face to face or, you know, something like that. So, sure. it's, you know, but you, you, you teach them just their role in a band and how you have to start listening to each other. I think you I would know, have them play that song, the I don't want to work. I just want to bang on the drum all day. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we've ever played that song. That should be the first song, um, and see if yeah. they see if they're committed or not. Yeah, exactly. See if they give one you that the look. Pu- one of the punk songs that we do for all of our beginner bands is we do Blitzkrieg Bop. Perfect, great song. Yeah, yeah, no, this is great, and uh, you know, it's 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 a you know, it's the Ramones, so it's pretty basic, you know, beat and with you know, basic chord structure. Um, so we, we we teach them that, and we just teach them how to how to listen to each other. I, I I tell my drummers now that the role of the drummer in a band is just to keep the band together. That's you know all these fancy fills and all that. Don't worry about that. Start together, end together. Make sure you're going into breaks together. That's your role as a drummer. So it's been that that's been pretty satisfying. So that's what I've been doing musically lately. Yeah. 
that's awesome. It's good yeah. to still be involved. So yeah. Uh, yeah. And I'll get in the band again someday. You know, I always joke with Tony, you know, before I moved up here five years ago, uh, when we started Mother of Dissension. Mm-hmm. That was that was fun. Uh, to me, that was just an extension of the Big Rusty Balls era. Sure. Uh, with with a new guitarist and and bassist and you know Randy Miller on guitar and Michael Jones on bass. I mean, those guys were very talented and had done a lot of different bands. Tony was coming off with the loads, and this was basically my return to the nardcore scene. And we had a lot of fun with that, you know, recording and play. I was thinking places we played. We played all over, you know, Oxnard area, but we also we had a show up in Lompoc or Paso Robles once, and we even played Las Vegas. <laughs> so, yeah. and we played LA a couple of times too. I think if we were younger, I think that band would have really taken off. Um, and you know, my wife and I moved up here to be closer to our kids and our grandkids. So that was, once again, that was a decision I made and, uh, you know, I don't regret it at all, but I really enjoyed creating music with Tony again. And, uh, um, you know, I think, I think Tony's one of the best songwriters that I'll ever, that I'll ever meet. There's plenty of time. You can do another band 10 years from now. I don't think either, yeah. either, neither of you guys are going to stop, <laughs> right? Why stop yeah. now? No, exactly. You know, and, and and I'll we'll move back to the 805 area. You know, probably when I retire from work in a few years. I plan on retiring in three years. So, you know, still young enough that I'm going to go down there. You know, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll get together with Tony again, and we'll start another band. We had toyed with the idea of an acoustic band uh, before uh, Mother of Dissension took off. Tony and I were practicing to do an acoustic gig. Uh, we had found out that other, you know, former punkers like Kevin Seconds was doing acoustic stuff, and Tony really liked it. And uh, uh, we were practicing a lot of our old Ill Repute stuff uh, uh, as an acoustic duo, and uh, um, it was fun. And you know, we were rearranging it to to work out. And at the time, he was still playing with the loads, so he didn't have a lot of time to commit to it. But it was something that we had worked on for. Well, I'd say for a good six weeks or so, we yeah. were meeting regularly, and uh, so we'll we'll be in a band together again. Yeah, we we will, and uh, so it's, it's never over. I still have my my drum set set in my bedroom here, and you know I've got all my equipment, so um, I'll, I'll I'll get back into it again. <laughs> Do you have any uh, other gaps or anything that you feel like we missed? I'm trying to think. Uh, no, not really. I mean, it was a lot of fun. Like I said, creating and spending time with with those guys. Uh, I remember the first time I went to punk rock bowling with John. I think it was in 2011. Maybe it might, might have been 2012. Um, it was my first time going to punk rock bowling. And, and, and you know, it was the first time John and I had been in a car together in probably almost 20 years. And just getting caught up. Over a three-day weekend, John and I had spent, um, out of a 72-hour period, I think we spent 70 of those hours together. Yeah, <laughs> just so getting, cool. just, just so getting cool. caught up with everything. And, sure. you know, Jim and I are good now, and we've been talking a little bit lately, just communicating ill-repute stuff. Um, you know, Tony and I, you know, we still spending time. Whenever my wife and I go down to the 805, you know, Tony and Don are, you know, the top two or three people were calling outside of our family 
they're coming up here actually to the San Jose area to spend uh, his wife's uh, birthday up here. So yeah, we we still get together and uh, um, yeah. So uh, no, I, I think uh, as far as the band years go, I think uh, we covered up a lot of ground there. Cool. So the the people like it when I ask, do you feel like you've been well represented? Yeah. Okay, yeah. good, yeah. Carl. You know, you know, and I, I'll be honest, the first time I heard your uh, um, your podcast with Tony and and, and then you just asked all these drumming questions, I, did, I, I, I really felt like, you know, te- almost a tear came to my eye because the way <laughs> Tony represented it, but I appreciated your asking. I know one thing I was going to mention, too, was in those early years when we were just trying to figure out the band and you know, I, was, I was trying to figure out drumming. I do want to give a shout out to the original Nardcore drummer buddies, which I had, which was me, uh, Larry White, Rick Heller, Harry Meisenheimer, and even Mark Aber. Uh, I spent, you know, when we were at shows and parties, I didn't know a lot of people really, so I just kind of gravitated to the other drummers. And even though the four or five of us had such different styles, we all had such a great respect for each other and learned a lot from each other. I remember uh, having like just drum conversations with all four of those guys over the you know during those two or three years where everything was just uh, you know during those classic years of the of the nardcore scene. Um, those guys were just as instrumental to my drumming development as anybody else. Sure. So. Uh, I think that's a great thing to bring up. That was good to get that in there. Yeah. Cool. Well, Carl, thanks so much for doing this. All right, Zach, <clears throat> thanks for calling and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll keep in touch. Yeah. I'll, I'll circle with you to give you updates on this. All righty. All right. Take bye. care. Talk to you. Good All right. Bye. Now, like most interviews, uh, usually I'll do an interview and someone will hit me up right after and be like, oh, fuck, I remembered all this stuff, you know, I want to talk about. But because uh, I love talking to Carl so much, I let him come back on and I was going to try to be all slick and edit this shit so you wouldn't notice. But you guys are too smart for that, man. So here's a break and then bring back Carl for uh, to wrap this up. We're going to go for another 45 or so. All right, we're recording. Okay, so a couple things I wanted to share was, um, you know, I wasn't into punk rock, but I think I needed to start being uh, more familiar with the scene and going to shows more. And I just remember my very first punk rock show was at the Goleta Valley Community Center. I don't recall what year it was, probably 81 maybe 82, but I doubt it. It was probably 81. My very first punk rock show was, um, black flag and channel three. Wow. And, <laughs> and, it, yeah, and like, it was all downhill from there. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, until you saw threat. Right. Exactly. So I can't even recall which singer that would have been in, in, at that era, but I remember going to that show and I probably didn't get a chance to really enjoy it so much because I was just so scared. Yeah, I had heard stories of them just beating guys up who just didn't have shaved heads. Mm-hmm. And I would, you know, I just hid behind Tony the entire time. And, yeah. and, and Tony's such a good friend. He's kind of protect me. Okay, stand here. You know, don't look at guys in the eye. <laughs> that, <laughs> kind of, that kind of thing. So that was kind of memorable. 
I, and then I remember my first LA show. I don't exactly know who was playing. I remember seeing Bad Brains and Bad Religion in one of those earlier shows. And they played together? But, yeah, I'm thinking oh so. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and that's what's it, it's kind of weird that it was a waste to a guy like me who really didn't even know this punk rock history that I was being attached to and seeing these bands. And once again, this is my first time now in LA and being more concerned about being scared than enjoying the scene and the music. And I remember um, the riot squad ended up showing up. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how or why. And I find two guys that I knew from Oxnard who were bigger than me, who I'm hiding behind. And the funny thing is these two guys are the sweetest and funniest guys that you'll ever know. And one was Ruben Sanchez and the other one was Ismael Hernandez. Okay. So I'm thinking, I didn't know Ismail that much, but I'm thinking that this is the guy I'm going to hide behind. So the cops don't come beat me up. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So, um, but one of the things I wanted to share to you, you know, like I remember going to the Santa Monica civic show, the classic one that had the black flag reunion, the misfits, original misfits and the vandals. That was wow. that was the that was the lineup. So that was the infamous Black Flag show where everybody in Black Flag played that night. Yeah, and they played the era of the songs um, where they sang. So they they opened up with the Keith Morris uh, uh, era. Sure. You know, you know, and then they went into Chavo. You know, Dez sang a few songs, and then Henry finished it out. Um, so the, the notable thing about that night was, you know, we used to hang out with the Circle One guys a lot. And um, I guess Circle One, a lot of times, and I'm not sure how or why, but they would get free tickets to shows. And I think it was the promoter's way of trying to keep peace. Like if we give you basically John Macias and your friends tickets to show then you're not going to cause trouble and actually you're going to help keep peace at the show right so at the santa monica civic show they didn't give him tickets oh shit so john's like you know he's talking to all of us that were part of this group i don't want to call it a gang <laughs> but those of us who were with him that night said okay we're going to rush the doors awesome. so here's what we're going to do we're going to stay in line like we have a ticket and when I give the signal, we're just going to run in. And basically, it's every man for themselves at that point. Yeah. So I'm a smaller guy, and we're in line. And there was another guy who I believe his name was John Olso. I don't know his last name. And, and he, you know, he's kind of, you know, don't worry, Carl, I got you. And I'm hanging on to the back of his belt loop of his pants. Okay. So we're all kind of walking in like we have tickets. And all of a sudden... Someone must have given the signal and everybody starts running in. <laughs> so I'm holding on to him and I'm getting through the first wave of security. And, and now we're in the lobby and all we need to do is get into the crowd and then there's no way they're going to find us. Right. So we're getting ready to open the doors into the auditorium itself. And right then, right when John grabs the door, somebody comes out at the same time and slams the door open and hits John right in the head and knocks him out. Oh, jeez. So John's laying on the ground, 
I remember this, and I'm going to pick him up. And right when I'm going to pick him up, I see, I don't know, three, four bouncers coming right our way. He's pretty much knocked out. And I let him go, and I was like, I'm sorry, John. And I let him go, and I run into the crowd. <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of a dick pussy move, but I was like, what am I going to do? I'm already in. He's already knocked out. They're going to, you know, I figured this is the way it, the way it goes. Yeah. Um, so fast forward a number of years. So Bill Repute goes through their eras of breaking up. You know, we do the transition stuff stuff riot show breaks out we get back together and now we're trying to make our comeback and this we're playing leading, leading up to big rusty balls yeah this is like right around the big rusty ball but right before big rusty balls era okay. and we're playing down in norwalk with the walk proud guys all the time there were these two girls kim and peggy that i used to hang out with during this era all the time. I'd go down to Long. They're from Long Beach, but they knew the guys in Walk Proud. You know, we'd go to parties down there. They would take me to raves. I don't even know where they would take me. Um, they would come up to Wainini and hang out with the band there. So one night, they take me to this party, and I'm not sure where it was at. And we walk party, and the entire party is just dimly lit. I mean, very, very low lit. And I start looking around. I kind of get this weird vibe. And I start looking around, and everybody there just seemed like they were a gang member. Okay. And I'm looking, and I'm sensing now that everybody's looking at me, because this is after an era that we hadn't played in a while. And I'm thinking, oh, shit. This is the night I'm going to die. <laughs> I really felt like because I walk in with these two girls and everybody's looking at me like, who the hell are you walking into our party with our girls? Yeah. I mean, that was the sense I got. So nobody, you know, everybody's just dogging me the whole, the whole time. So I find a corner in the living room and I just kind of duck away while Kim and Peggy are socializing or drinking or whatever. I'm just kind of sitting here and I'm thinking, okay, I mean, I'm really praying God, if this is the way I'm going to die, don't let it hurt. <laughs> I'm just really thinking that they were going to string me up that night. It was you know, mm -hmm. looking at me funny and you know bumping into you and just thinking, what the fuck are you doing here? Right. So, so the girls kind of sense what's going on, and uh, instead of just introducing me to everybody, which would have made it a lot easier, we go through this whole what I you know almost like a theatrics of explaining who why i'm there mm -hmm. so these guys start talking about classic punk rock shows that they've been to okay. and one guy mentions the olympic auditorium with bad religion mm -hmm. so kim or peggy one of them just kind of mentioned to you know to me he said, hey carl didn't you guys play that night and i got my head down i said yeah we played and so one of the guys comes up because what you were in a band and the girl says, yeah, this is Carl, a drummer from Ill Repute. And they're looking at me, no way. Oh, well, yeah, I am. And the guy starts saying, he starts listing all these songs. What? Like Cherokee Nation, Clean Cut American Kid, Fuck With My Head. Yeah, those are our songs. And they say, you know, the guy starts reciting, booking its cover. Yes. Okay, so then 
the whole party's starting to sing Book in His Cover to me. (laughs) (laughs) And literally by the end of the night, I'm arm in arm with these guys, and they're thinking, and they're they're telling me, Carl, you want to come party with us whenever you want. You can leave Kim and Peggy at home. You know, you're one of us now. (laughs) It was 180 degrees from when I came into that door thinking I was really just going to die or get beat up. Yeah. Where I was, these guys' best friends. That was one of the uh, the few times that being in ill repute uh, really helped. Uh, you know, I guess build my credibility. <laughs> yeah, well, a lot so, of times, you know, people refer to punk and hardcore as, uh, you know, it's, yeah. that, it's that secret handshake. Well, it is. And years later, so now we fast forward probably another ten years. I'm married. I have a kid. Live in the house in Ventura. You know, away from the scene for many, many years. And there was a guy that lived next door to me that was, we'll just we'll say he was associated with a disreputable motorcycle gang. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and that was, we all knew the whole neighborhood knew the guy had been in and out. Uh, and um, he never really talked to me at all. And his parents lived next door to me, really. And uh, one day he were both out in the front yard at the same time and he sees my car and my license plate since 1984 has been IR drummer. Okay. You know, I've had, I've had the same license plate since 1984. I've moved it probably on about eight or nine different cars. And he looks at it. He goes, IR drummer. What's that supposed to mean? You a drummer? I go, yeah, I, I'm a drummer. He goes, well, what's that IR stand for? I go, well, I was the ill repute drummer. He goes, really? I love you guys. So from that point on, he was always like, really super cool to me yeah. you know he would stop conversations like one time he was on the phone uh talking to whoever and i pull up and i heard him say hold on a second my neighbor just drove up he goes, hey carl go, so it was kind of it was yeah. kind of funny but yeah. it's cool and he was always really cool to me um one of the other uh things i just kind of wanted to I wanted to talk about that. I didn't want to go really unnoticed and, and that's our relationship with Jerry Finn when he did the big rusty balls for us, the big rusty balls album. Uh, because Jerry was just, you know, he was just making his way. Um, he had his band, they were called wonder bug, uh, but he wanted to go to recording school, but you know, Jerry had ended up, you know, worked with, every pop punk band that ever existed and the way a lot of you guys who grew up around that era, he revolutionized pop punk. I mean, he did, not only did he do green day, uh, and the moth, you know, and rancid, but he did blink One Eighty Two. I mean, he was so instrumental in our big rusty balls era that, you know, he went from, Recording, he, he figured out how to record punk rock digitally, which was unheard of at that time. Actually, our demo tape, he recorded analog, and he was just, he was just dead set against digital. He said, no, we're doing this analog because that's a be- better, cleaner, warmer sound, and you know, it's just the best way to record. This digital stuff isn't going to go anywhere. So from, he said that from the time we went from there to the time we recorded the album, he said, oh, no, we're doing it digital. I found some stuff out. <laughs> and, and, and so he kind of he kind of did everything digital. I remember going into the studio once with him when he was mixing the moths. 
And seeing him perform his magic in post-production and bending notes digitally just so it would, you know, fit with the music. Um, so, and then when he died years later after that, uh, it was a shock to me. And I found a blog that um, guys in Blink-182 were writing on. So me and I think it was Tom were emailing each other for you know, a couple of weeks just reminiscing about Jerry. And during that time, I had spent a lot of time with Jerry during our recording sessions. You know, he was spending the night. I spent the night at his house. We were going to parties. We were going to concerts. Um, well, that he, was he just, paid him a hundred bucks. He deserved it all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. He owed it to us, right? Yeah. <laughs> I remember one time going to see a show with Jerry and we were going to go see a Kiss tribute band. Jerry was a huge Kiss fan. But one of the opening bands was, I don't know who they were. It was just this horrible heavy metal band. I remember Jerry turning to me and he said, I can't believe I just wasted my hearing on these guys. As a, <laughs> as a, as a record engineer, producer, hearing is everything. Mm-hmm. And he was so upset that they were so horrible that he had to listen to those guys. But, um. So yeah, funny. those are those are just some of those highlights. I think one of the other highlights I was thinking of was the very first time that we heard Clean Cut American Kid on the radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were hanging out with these girls up in Ojai. Um, I don't remember if Jim and John were there at the party, but I know Tony was there for sure. I think John so Tony, was because I think John told the story. Yeah. So we're just sitting there and we're just talking. And I remember when I heard it with them that night, I just remember turning to Tony and I said, God, I keep hearing clean cut American kid in my head. And he said, so do I. And then we kind of looked around the radio. You know, we see this radio and this staticky version of clean cut American kids being played on the radio. And it was almost like that scene from that thing you do yeah. where you're just running around the house. We're on the radio. We're on the radio. And you know, that to me of all the things we've ever done musically, that's definitely and probably one of the top two or three highlights. The first time you hear yourself on the radio, and it's not just like some small college radio, some punk kid playing. You know, I mean, it was on Rodney on the Rock, which at the time was you know the biggest punk rock show that existed and that we were actually being played on there. And to me, what makes that so much more uh, memorable, I guess, is that Somebody else is controlling that. You can go and play a gig and you can actually throw your own gigs and you could come up with your own money and come out with an album. But when somebody else is playing you on the radio, that kind of made me feel like, okay, we've made it. You know, that, that was, uh, so that was, that was a highlight there. Yeah. A little bit of validation. Yeah. That was, that was, that was certainly, certainly the, the validation of all that. So anyway, those are those are some of those highlight stories that, you know, went on. I did want to tell you this, you know, um, so I finally just finished that podcast that you and um, you and Ryan did. Uh-huh. And it started to make me realize because I wasn't around during this whole era at all. I mean, I was com- almost compl- I was completely removed from the scene. And to hear your guys' story, which is kind of funny because this is like, when you guys were doing it was 16, 17, 18 years later than when we first started. 
some of the things that you guys went through on tour were so similar to things that we went through too. And I was thinking, wow, I guess it really didn't uh, evolve too much. Yeah. But just hearing you guys' story, and you know, and I got, I feel bad that I didn't know you guys during that time. I didn't follow it. I remember the band name, um, which I was kind of, I was kind of proud that, glad that the scene was still kind of going, even though I wasn't part of it. But the fun you guys had with it, just you know, and and all that, I, I, I was like, God, that was, and I will tell you, that was a very good interview. Well, so I didn't want to, yeah, I didn't want to, you know, we just share those kind of stories. And yeah. we made it know. about halfway through because we were chitter chatting yeah. <laughs> so much. We made it up to the year 2001. So we got three right. more years to go. Right. But uh, yeah, it was funny actually because we, there was a tour and we, we ditched our drummer in Texas and drove home. And <laughs> when I got home, I got a call from Tony like on my landline and he's like, that's so fun. Like he already, like the story had like gotten back to Nard. And he's like, that's so funny that you like ditched your drummer because like we did the same thing once, but it was with uh, one of the roadies. Right. It's like, yeah, we just we ditched him and sent him home on a on a Greyhound. But it was it was so funny that the story had already made it home, and like literally within a couple hours of me like getting home, <laughs> Tony's calling on the phone. Ah, I so I was digging through some old stuff, uh, maybe about a month ago or so, and I found a postcard that John had written to the band after we had kicked them out. Oh, he sent it from France. I think it was, I, you know, I, I just, I remember saying, I, I, I think he did. And he's like, I'm on the beach. Have fun in the van pussies. <laughs> no, the, the thing, no, it was actually the exact opposite. Oh, he was, it was very heartfelt. It was like, Hey, I'm sorry things didn't work out. I've kind of felt pressured into this. You know, I don't do well with those kind of things and really hope that everything works without I, I hope everything works out with us in the end. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, and I was thinking, yeah no, it was very sweet. And that's kind of I really I, I guess at the time it was happening, a lot of egos, a lot of things were being said. And I look back now, if we had really knew how hard that had to have been for John to have sent that to us. Well, you it, it goes back to that you guys were friends before you were in a band, right? Right. So, so there's a purity to your band that when you right. strip away all the bullshit, you're friends. And, right. And that was, a, that was trouble I had with Hang Troll because we went through so many members too. And, you know, members leave and you're butthurt over certain reasons. And it's like, <laughs> fuck, if I didn't have this band, I would have way more friends because why am I angry at all these people? <laughs> Like it's only because of this band that I'm angry at everyone. So, right, it's you know no. you got to strip that away and and just you know people are people and those friends. If you strip away like the uh, the the commitments you have to each other due to this, like you know at the end of the day, it's a little bit of a business entity. You know, right. like you can enjoy them for who they are. Yeah, it's kind of like you know when I you know was removed from the whole scene for many you know mid twenty something years. And then, like, when John and I went to punk rock bowling in, you know, 2011 or 12 or whatever that was, and we drove all the way out there, it was the first time that we'd even talked about life. I mean, here we are, we're in our 50s now, you know, or, or approaching 50, and, you know, and a whole bunch of life has already happened. So it's kind of like, how do we deal with that? I had already been married twice. 
yeah. at that time. And well, he, he was talking. You can remember why you wanted to be around this guy in the first place, right? Like, why did he <laughs> want to do a band together? Because you liked each other. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, you know, we start, you know, and, we, and it wasn't like we were just reminiscing over everything. We're talking about spiritual stuff and, 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 you know, John's very spiritual in that respect as well. We shared a lot of common, you know, stories about our, you know, maturity basically. Um, you know, cause like when, like when Jerry Finn died, um, you know, John was close to Jerry too. Um, but we never talked about that. We never talked about, it was like when I was, when I had my second, marriage i i just removed myself from the whole scene um so i didn't you know, i sparingly saw john over those years um you know but when his dad died i was at his dad's funeral you sure. know when jim when jimmy's dad died i was at jimmy's dad's funeral so you're right you remember that you were friends before or away from the band and that you still just kind of a yeah you still enjoyed their company you just had to have this band Kind of got in the way of things uh, as far as that goes. That's why I still love those guys very tenderly, and I, I try to keep in touch with them as much as possible, have no hard feelings for where the band is gone because, yeah, you know, this is what we did. And, you know, like you said, Chuck's moving it on, and I'm still involved in some respects from an outer, you know, uh, rim, which is okay with me anyway. Sure. So. Yeah, and, and we have all these memories. <laughs> really, we really do. Um, one of the things too is like you mentioned in your podcast about you know getting that white whale of Doug Moody. That was another way I got back into the scene was when our documentary started coming up. They you know they really wanted Doug to be part of the documentary, and we also wanted. Doug to give the rights to the, you know, he wanted us to release the song so we could use them at that point in time. Even to this day, I am the only member of ill repute that Doug will talk to. You know, he, he broke ties with Tony. He never liked Jimmy. Rio didn't want to talk to John. So, you know, so the producers and the developers of the, um, documentary is like well he's got to be able to talk to he's got to talk to somebody and they asked me hey can you try to talk to him so i talked to so i made contact with doug and i said hey i want to come down and visit you i went down to san you know wherever he's at vista or uh or san marcus yeah around there Where, yeah around there yeah north County. i went san to his Diego. house i spent all day at doug's house like literally like eight hours and just talking to him He's, you know, he's remi- he's telling me all these stories. He's telling me what he felt, what our problems were. I mean, he disclosed all kinds of different stuff to me. So it was kind of like, um, wow, this is like, you know, so we well, just got a lot, of, got a lot out of him. Yeah. You got to reach out to him, Carl, and tell him to come on the pod. I've, well, you uh, know, I will. I've, uh, I've spoke to him several times and I've met him okay. before. So he should know who I am, but, uh, you know, sometimes I think that uh, some of the people that surround him, they're I don't I don't know what they're looking for. I don't know if he always has the best people around him. So right, I think well, I think I think he's a little cautious about that stuff. And and I wonder right. if I wonder if he thinks he's walking into a trap that I'm gonna blast yeah. him on stuff. And and I'm just looking to do a friendly interview because he's you know 
he's been in the music business for his entire life, and he's uh, well, exactly. He's an eighty-year-old man now, and his dad was in the industry, and I believe his <laughs> grandfather as well, right? So right. I, so you yeah. have like going back to the turn of the twentieth century, his family involved <laughs> he, in music. Like I'd like to get all of it, right? You know, and he, unfortunately, um, unfortunately, he's he's older now, and I don't mean to be morbid, but. I'd well, like, right. I'd there's like, not going to be too many more opportunities. No, I would like to get the story down, and and I'm not looking to, you know, trap him into like asking about royalties and shit. I just, yeah. you know, in that the just early story, yeah, in the early time of Mystic is so crazy because he's throwing so much shit against the wall. Like in '83, <laughs> he's not yeah. he's not committed to punk yet. He's doing no. all sorts of stuff, and he's like on the the front end of like doing the weird shaped records, like. Yeah, I don't know if you follow the 185 Instagram, but I have like most of that stuff. And he did that record for the Sharks. It's like the coolest right. packaging ever, with like the shark fin popping up. <laughs> like, okay, yeah, it is absolutely amazing. So, you know, he did a Fernando Valenzuela like. Picture oh, I remember. Yeah, image. I did see that. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like I don't know. It's just stuff that I would love to get a story. Like, how do you end up, you know, in like 82, 83, doing a Fernando Valenzuela picture disc, like? That's at the peak of his like popularity, like right. you know, and it looks like it's a legit licensed record. Like, so it's like, is he so above the board on some records and so <laughs> like below the board on some? Like, I don't know, but we yeah. gotta we gotta so, get the story. Yeah, so he he actually called me out of the blue. I'm thinking maybe a month ago, maybe six weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Just, I mean, just out of the blue. Yeah. He did, and and basically, the reason he called me was he wanted me to give the message out to everybody that he's still alive, and that all the you know as much as everybody wants to bury him and all this other stuff, he he actually said this: the more people are talking about him, it just keeps him and Mystic Records more alive. That's great. I mean, that's cool. I mean, that, that was the reason why he called me. That's he just and he left, he just left me a voicemail. Yeah, and he just said, "You know, that's it, Carl. I just want to let you know this." And he, goes, he said, "You know, you're the only one who I felt like I could trust and talk to." And yeah, every time they talk about me, I'm still alive. So you let everybody know that I'm still kicking. Yeah. Well, I think this would be the perfect <laughs> the perfect platform. So. If you can help me get him on here, I would really, really. Yeah, and you're it. down there. You're probably not far from him at all. No, no, no. I've I've met him before, and and I would yeah. go to him, or if he's more comfortable doing phone, I'll do whatever. Right. And and I'll do it any time of day or night, like whatever he needs, I'll do it. If he wants a hundred yeah. bucks, I'll give him a hundred bucks. <laughs> you know, whatever. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, I think that would be your your definitely your your great white whale. Yeah. I want to share one really quick story. And I think John touched on this about recording. Okay. And, and he was trying to think of the song that, you know, I was struggling with and just, cause it was just repetitive over and over again. And I kept losing my beat. It was, is when we were recording, taking care of business, mm-hmm. you know, I remember that song. Cause it's, it was so vividly that, um, I didn't do any drum fills really on that song. So it's hard to, for me to keep exactly where I am with the song, sure. how many times we were. And it, so when we recorded that, we didn't do any scratch vocals with it. It was just me, John or me, Jimmy and Tony just trying to do all the rhythm tracks. So, you know, I'm playing the song fine, 
But then at the end of the song, you know, whether we do the chorus four more times or eight more times or whatever, I kept getting lost right at the end. And I would just, I would just lose concentration. I'm playing 99% of the song and literally like in the last 20 seconds, I would just lose concentration and I couldn't finish the song. And I think we, we must've went through that track, the, the, the rhythm track. I don't usually when we do a song, you know, cause we practice so much and it was just, you know, and it was still punk rock. We probably would do the rhythm portion or my recording of it two, three times at the max. Sure. And I'd say a lot of times it was really one take and we've got it. Uh, that song, I, I'm going to say at least 10 takes. Wow. And, and I'd say the first nine of them, I, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't even finish it. And <laughs> I remember we were, we were playing and then, and they're, and they're like, Carl, what the fuck's going on? I, go, I don't know. I don't know. And then I started getting mad at them. I was like, Hey, you guys fuck up all the time and I'm dealing with it. So, you know, give me a break <laughs> kind of thing. So we, I remember we took a break and I remember John and Tony and Jim, they're running me around the block at mystic Hey, let's just go for a jog. And we, we, <laughs> we yeah. shake it all out of me. We do everything we could. And, you know, we finally finished the song, but it was, it was the most grueling recording session I had ever had ever for a cover song. <laughs> yeah. On, on a cover song. Yeah. Exactly. That, uh, you know, played it hundreds of other times, but just couldn't get through that one session for some reason. That's how it is um, in the studio. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you get one little, just one little hiccup, and you can't get past it. Yeah, you know? and it's weird because there's other stuff I've let go. Of. Like even on Clean Cut American Kid, to this day, I really don't like listening to it on the radio mm-hmm. because during one fill, I hit a drum mic, <laughs> and and it's there. So I challenge any drummer out there to hear it because I'm think a drummer would hear it, but there's just like I do this drum, and then you hear this click. Right, you know, just click. I mean, yeah. and I remember hearing in the in the in the mix, and I remember sitting there with Robbie Fields and the band. And I'm like, "Hey, I think I just hit a, a, a drum mic there," and they're like, ah, "Don't worry about it." I think really, this is like we're spending. You know, they, I don't know how much they spent on us, but you're going into a recording studio to do one song, so we're there all day for one song, and you're gonna let me get away with hitting a a drum mic? I think. All right. So, and, and on Cherokee, I hit a drum mic also. Okay. But we let we let that go as well. So I hear though. I mean, I hear them because I know exactly where they're at. But maybe they're just buried in, you know, punk rock lore now. People like, just want to slam Carl. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> At the too. end of the day, they just want to slam. Yeah, they they do. And then um, I don't know if I ever shared shared the story about when. Um, the, the first iteration of a three-piece that Ill Repute might have had to do at a huge show was um, we were playing the Olympic Auditorium. I'm not sure which show it was, but uh, I, I think it was UK Subs. But it was a huge show. And we were supposed to be the opening band. What year do you think this is? Uh, probably 84. Okay. I think what, ha- what happens next was definitely out already. Okay. So um, we were going to be the opening band. But Jimmy was late for the show. 
So we had always, cause we only, you know, I was the only one who had a car really that could go to LA regularly. And so we always traveled together. Okay. We just always, it was just a pack. We're going together. You know, there wasn't even an option. So for some reason, this show, Jimmy ended up going with his brother. Okay. Uh, so a bunch of people from Oxnard were, you know, family members, we're going to go to the Olympic Auditorium. So me, John and Tony are there. And we're, we we do the sound check without Jimmy, and we're all set up on stage, and um, promoters saying, "Hey, you guys got to go on." And I said, "Our bass player is not here," and we actually convinced the op- the other the next band to go on before us, and it was a band called Raw Power from Italy. Yeah, I love that band. Screams, yeah. screams from so the gutter. we we made them open for us just because our bass player wasn't there. So now, so they play, because I think they were going to borrow some equipment from us. Okay. So we said, well, you guys got to play before us then. So How good were they? they? Do you remember that? Do you remember their set? Uh, they were pretty, they were good. I do remember insane. them being good. That's one of my favorite LPs of all time. Okay. Yeah. Raw Power Screams from the Gutter. And it's probably, okay. it's probably 84-ish. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so they play and now we're playing and now we're going on. Jimmy's still not there. Jesus. So now we're thinking, uh, John, you got to play bass. <laughs> so, so John was going to play bass and sing. I mean, he literally had it ready to go. We're delaying as long as possible, and mm-hmm. you know, and the promoter's like, "No, you guys got to start playing." And so we're getting ready to play, and and Olympic Auditorium during those days, those shows were massive. Yeah, I mean, easily a thousand people are there. You got to play the intro to Sleepwalking for like ten minutes. <laughs> that's what I, well, that's what I should have done. Well, anyway, so we're getting ready to play, and then we see this guy running from the back of the auditorium toward the stage, and it was Jimmy, and he finally got there. And I guess what happened was his brother got a speeding ticket oh. on the way down. They were already running late, got a speeding ticket, so it became more late. Jimmy jumps on stage, and <laughs> You know, he does, you know, then we go through the show. But I remember that being one of the highlights uh, also is when we break into Cherokee Nation and then the first break and the first break of, you know, Cherokee people, that hearing that entire auditorium singing along to that. Yeah. That just brought chills. That was like, wow, this is crazy. This whole auditorium knows the lyrics of this song, and they're singing along with us. That's sick. So, uh, no, yeah. So that was, uh, you know, that was just one of those other, you know, notable times of just what it was like then. But it was to me, it was just, it was refreshing to hear your guys's podcast because, like I said, I wasn't around for when you guys played. You guys were too young to even know what it was like when we played. Yeah, and. And and you're just hearing these stories from us. And, you know, when I'm talking about, oh, yeah, my first show was Black Flag and Channel 3, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> oh, yeah, I saw Bad Brains and, and Bad Religion play. I remember, I think it was Bad Brains, Bad Religion, and Social Distortion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I said, oh, yeah, yeah, playing a backyard party with uh, Sin 34 and Suicidal Tendencies and Black Flag. Yeah, that's just, uh, that's what we just did. And I think, I look back now and I was like, wow, I really wish I had appreciated it more for what it was. Not just like our our role in the whole development of this whole thing, but even just being 
attached to those bands. I remember playing a show in um, at the T-Bird Roller Drome. I don't know. It must have been 20 bands, but we played, but Circle Jerks played. And I remember uh, playing, and Keith Morris was just sitting right next to me the entire time, just watching me play. Mm-hmm. You know, here, his drummer is one of my favorite, obviously, influences, but one of my favorite hardcore drummers of all time, and probably arguably one of the best hardcore drummers of all time. Sure. And he's watching me play and telling me, that he thought I was great. <laughs> yeah, just just quit. You just you yeah, reached yeah. the apex. Well, this is the best day of my uh, musical career. I'm out. I'm going out on top. Keith Morris said yeah. I was great. Yeah, Keith Morris said I was great. And that, and that was early on. I mean, that was, you know, and, and, and I remember running into Ian McKay at one of the uh, Stardust Ballroom shows and just bumping into him apparently he knew who i was and he just said hey i heard your album that sounds good yeah how, <laughs> that, was, that was my interaction with him how many times did you see minor threat um at least twice yeah and how how, how good were they oh it was amazing so i remember the dancing water show that we played with them but i also they played the cafe to grant okay and i remember so by this time it was when the out of step album was out and this is when they added the new bass player. And I can't remember what song it was. And, and they had this massive song list. It was, it kind of reminded me of our old refrigerator box that we used to use in my old garage. We just had all our songs up there. They, I mean, they were going to play everything from the seven inches to, um, the, the out of step album. Yeah. And, uh, Bass player started a song, but he started the wrong song. But it had the same bass line at the beginning as the other song. Okay. And they started going into it. And then, everybody, and then I remember Ian just stopped and goes, hey, that was the wrong song. And I go, oh, okay. <laughs> but, you know, they're talking about the Cathedral Grand where I don't even know if you could even fit 100 people in there. It was probably only 50 or 60 people, really. Yeah. And you're right on top of the band. And you're, like, right there. Like, Right there, yeah. You know, so, um, yeah. So just being around that, I didn't realize what that really meant. You know, sure. Well, uh, you're living it. Yeah, you're living. It. You yeah. don't. It doesn't. You know, everyone perspective. You get it in the future, right? You know, in right. That's how you can figure out if you're doing something important or something completely insignificant. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, well, you ended up on the lucky side. I remember a story that John shared with me years later. Uh, so we're making our comeback at the you know, big rusty balls era. And he's talking to fat Mike and, you know, no effects had already made a couple albums, had done some tours. So they're pretty, they're, they're, they're pretty popular at that time. And John was pretty much downplaying our significance, you know, our, our insignificance in, in the whole punk rock scene and you know the fat mike's like no way you were that band that was playing kathy de grand on a tuesday night at one o'clock in the morning you know you guys kept things good you guys were groundbreaking for bands like us to keep playing later on and never even thought of it that way you know uh john shares a story about some guy that he met that was in prison um, John met him after that 
And the guy told John that the one thing that kept him motivated to get out of prison and turn his life around was the lyrics to book and its cover. Yeah. And, and, and when you, so when you start thinking about those kind of things, you start thinking, wow, maybe we did do something. Maybe we mattered to some people, you know, <laughs> it, it, it is, it is crazy. You know, and you, you add up all these things and you're getting a proclamation from your hometown, you know, and it, it, and it mattered to some people, I guess. And so, you know, proud of the work, you know, uh, like I said, I think what made it work is just, we were, we were just friends just trying to, just, to, just trying to have fun with each other. Yeah. It came from a sincere place. Yeah, it really did. You know, um, Tony and I, you know, like we still talk about things like I, I mentioned Tony's songwriting is just so meaningful. He didn't want to just make stupid lyrics that just kind of went with music. I mean, all of his lyrics had always, uh, uh, meant something. He always wanted to tell a story. I remember when, when we, uh, started, uh, mother of dissension and we would talk about how many times we should play a verse. I would always tell Tony, well, how many verses does it take for you to tell the story? Cause if it's, it's like at take least you, eight, at least eight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If it's going to take you three or four verses to, uh, to tell that story, then that's how many times we're going to play it. Cause, cause I knew he was just such a great storyteller in in, in his lyrics. Um, yeah, well, yeah, from the what beginning, about kicked off the bus? Did you get down with the bleed record? The kicked off the bus. <laughs> we don't care. You were never gonna be the one to take us anywhere. <laughs> so good. Yeah, his voice is perfect on it. Yeah, 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 uh, definitely. So he just, he just, you know, he performs, he writes, and he sings with such passion that uh, you know I've always just didn't just enjoyed playing in a band with him. You know, so. Yeah, well, you guys um, are all awesome to a man, right? Yeah, so yeah. Go, go, gotta, get, gotta I, get Jimmy on here. He's in. Yeah, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna interview him on the 20th of September, and then oh, then, nice. I, then uh, I got to do a short one with Chuck, and then I think we we got it. Maybe I'll get on Lipkey one day. Yeah, and, and Nashaya, where are you? Yeah. At? where are you at, Nashaya? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, you've done uh, Joe Rivas, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so we're, we're going to do Forest on the twenty first. Very good, very good. Yeah, no, good, good memories. Good, good, good. Definitely good memories. So, thank you, Zach. I appreciate. No, you've done you a, know. you've done a, a great job, Carl. So, all right. Well, thank you. And I'm going to get caught up on all your podcasts so I could now get caught up in what was going on with the Nardcore scene in the years that I was gone. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, we're gonna we're gonna work on one that we're gonna do that's. Uh, Nardcore from '87 to '92, which are okay. kind of like the uh, the rougher years, right? right. <clears throat> so, right. so Joe Rivas has curated a list of dudes to interview, and I think that'll be a really good one. So, okay, uh, yeah, look for that, and I'm gonna hold you to uh, getting Doug Moody for me, Carl. Okay, I got to work on that. I got to work on getting you. Uh, you know, I guess if someone wants to send me a hundred dollars per copy, I'll uh, you know, I'll I'll do bootleg. Uh, you know releases of all this unreleased ill repute stuff i mean, I'll, I'll, I'll just you know i put that out for the band i'm gonna you know i could always have that over their head because i know i have it and i want them to know that i have that too that's right if anyone ever asks them who is the best drummer they better say carl or that shit's coming out <laughs> so. no all righty all right carl thanks so much all right zach all right bye-bye. talk to you soon okay, bye bye-bye.